Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to tournament poker strategy. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Buddy and Killing Bird. Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. Killing Bird here with Ron Fez Buddy back for another episode. And uh, this is going to be an exciting one. I know you're particularly excited about this. Absolutely. Mr. Andrew Brokus is joining us today. Yeah. And I know there's probably some people out there, well, probably not some, probably a lot of people who listen not only to this podcast, but also to his thinking, well, I shouldn't say his, his and Nate Mavis's thinking poker podcast. So I know. I, I know there'll be a lot of people excited about having him on the show, uh, as we are. I hear a lot of people. Well, I read a lot of people. I don't. I don't hear it because I'm talking about our forums. I read a lot of people saying that they listen to our podcast and Thinker Poker podcast. It feels like not necessarily not necessarily not, not necessarily saying that listens to Thinking Poker podcast listens to ours, but I think a hot, because it covers a wider range of poker, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who listen to our podcast listen to the Thinking Poker podcast because it's a strategic podcast. Yeah. For the, you know, so it's, it, you know, it, it, does, it does play well for tournament players, and a lot of the hands that he goes over are tournament hands, um, so I think a lot of people who listen to ours listen to Thinking Poker podcast, and we'll be excited to have Andrew on. It's, uh, it's like a meeting of poker podcast <laughs> uh, celebrities. celebrities. Just say it. No, it's like it's like when no, that's what I, was, I was thinking like you know when shows would cross over like sitcoms ah, in the eighties yeah. like I don't know like Mork and Mindy would be on Happy Days. I guess that was right. <laughs> so it's like one of those. Who's Mork and who's Mindy? <laughs> I'm the Fonz, obviously. But. <laughs> I'm gonna say Andrew's Mark. Yeah, I think I think you're more of a potsy, honestly. Oh, <laughs> uh, too funny. So before we get Andrew on, uh, we should catch up a little bit. Uh, it's been a little while. So how uh, how's poker been for you or life in general? Uh, things are good. I live. I feel like I live in Winterfell. Um, we have snow <laughs> after snow after snow. Um, Kiki Game of Thrones reference for you. Don't know what I'm talking about. Um, which is coming back soon, so we're very excited. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, so poker is good and bad, like poker usually is. Uh, <laughs> down swings. You know what I've noticed? That it's getting to feel on Bovada like, you know, it's not fully the old days because of the anonymous tables, no sink breaks, um, but the pain starts to feel the same. <laughs> as the oh, oh, yes. <laughs> that feeling never seems to change. For some no, reason. I mean, it, 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 like, I, I had a run this week. Um, I played a couple, I put a couple of sessions in, and I had a one night with a, I mean, the fields are getting bigger. Like, the nightly 25K, which is a $60 tournament, gets, like, 42K in bias every night, which is awesome. That's like, that reminds me of the 50-50 back in, uh, you know, PokerStars days, right? Um, So it kind of reminds me of that tournament. So I want to play it every night now because it's so much fun. Um, Yeah. But, you know, and then there's a $10 10K tournament, which, you know, granted, it's not the biggest tournament in the world, but it gets like 1,300, 1,400 runners. It feels like those tournaments from from the old days. Um, And one night I finished 10th in the the 60, the 25K, uh, out of like, I don't know, 700 people or something, and maybe more than that. And then I finished 
uh, 20th in the 10K, 1,500 runners, on the same night. And that hasn't happened to me since pre-Black Friday with huge <laughs> fields like that and bubbling. I mean, when I say, yeah, bubbling, pretty much bubbling two final tables at the same time. It feels like, right. I mean, that used to happen on the reg, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you'd, you know, you'd play, t- you know, 25 tournaments and, you you know, a lot of times you get a 14th and a 16th, right? That frustration just came back. And I, it actually kind of feels good in a way. <laughs> You're like, ah, that good old feeling. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like, oh, I'm on the verge of something, right? Um, so I was on a, I was on a downswing of Bavada, but, uh, you know, I've had, like, when that happens, like, you know, it kind of helps your bankroll a little bit, right? Like, it's still, it, you know, it still helps your bankroll. So, uh, and when you have a couple of those nights in a row, it doesn't boost your bankroll, but it, it helps you a little bit. So I feel like I'm getting out of the downswing. How about you? Cool. Um uh, just sort of plateau. I had like a nice, I can't remember what, but I had like a nice start to the year, then yeah. went on a little bit of a downswing, but then I won the nightly 60 on Merge. The other night, people who play on Merge will know that's kind of like their flagship yeah. six. Well, they have like a, you know, they have three nightly tournaments, and or the, what they call the nightlies. One of them is the $60. So I finally won that, so I got that little monkey off my back. And uh, yeah, so I kind of feel like I'm back on the upswing. And, uh, and on the live front, I actually just. Um, kind of settled on my dates for uh, World Series of Poker Circuit event in North Carolina, so oh. I'll be hitting that in April, so that'll be fun. April? Exactly. Yeah, early April. Uh, I think I'm going to go up for like four or five events. Which uh, which events? Like? Uh, it's funny, there, I don't remember this being the case last year, but maybe it was, but almost every event leading up to it is a 365, and then the main is 1650, I think. Right. But I feel like last year, you know, they had like they a had a 500. Yeah, they had like 560 or something like that. Yeah, and and I think there might have been like 500 PLO or something. But I mean, obviously, I just looked. At, I only play no limit, so I only looked at the no limit events. But the entire time on there, it's just all 365 oh, rig okay. events. So, um, which is fine with yeah. me. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a high stakes baller, so I got no problem going and playing. You know, maybe five 365. So nice, should be fun. Nice. So I'm gonna take a day off next week and go to Foxwoods for a. I mean, it's a small 400 dollar 75k. They'll probably get like 100k. Um, so it's nothing huge, but I, I, you know, I, I know Foxwoods is kind of on decline their poker room, and most people don't really like it. But I, I kind of like it. I don't know. It's a comfortable poker room for me. I think it's super soft, um, and it's the easiest poker room for me to get to. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I'm gonna go play that. Um, it's a two-day tournament, so I'll go hit that, see what happens, and uh, and really start to ramp up practice for the World Series. Know. Yep, won't be long now. God, it's hard to yeah. believe it's coming so quick. Still waiting for the official schedule, but um, that should be here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, we talked about I think last time they announced the dates, and a sort of pseudo schedule leaked a few days ago, but it was only like the big event. Yeah, yeah. Like they, the didn't, they didn't give you the big. They didn't give you the the, the rest of them. Just just yeah. the 10 case. And, and there's even some question as to whether it was actually accurate and things like that. Although there was an interesting part of that leaked schedule, which was that they were going to guarantee $10 million for the winner of the main event. I noticed that. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I guess normally I think you know, putting a guarantee in a tournament is always a good thing. It, you know, when Florida did that big $5 million guarantee, like it brought in tons of people. It just seems like they, it, it usually increases um, participation so much. I just don't know if it matters for the main event. It's a hundred percent does not matter for the main event. I don't think yeah. I don't think a ten million dollar final winner because it's it's ten million dollar the winner guaranteed. It's not a it's not a yeah. I believe that's how I read it. Yeah, I mean, 
uh, I mean, maybe it would make a difference if they made a hundred million dollar prize pool guarantee. Um, right. But I think a ten million dollar winner guarantee doesn't um, doesn't make a difference. And I think that money is going to come from other places. I you know since I don't think it's going to increase the prize pool, it's going to come from the rest of the prize pool. And I think that's a big mistake. I think I think you know pulling that money out of circulation, like the utility of someone winning ten million as opposed to winning eight million. Mm-hmm. Um, is not that much higher than some like like another four hundred people cashing, you know, right, which is right. I mean that could hurt. I mean maybe they don't take maybe, you know I think what is six hundred. Let's say it doesn't impact you know maybe sixty three hundred people register. I think that's around what registered last year, and let's say it doesn't impact that at all, right? They paid six hundred sixty six. I think you know I think I think that's what they paid. I, and that yeah, might have been the year right. before, but or, or or not, but that's roughly what they paid. You know, they're. If they pay, I don't know, maybe they'll pay 600 this time, right? So some of the money comes out of people min-cashing. And they'll probably pay a lot less along the lines to make up for that $10 million. And I just don't think the utility function, you know, the happiness that comes from someone making $2, $3 million more from a first-place prize is worth the fact that you're going to pull a lot of money out of the poker economy and, you know, dissuade more people from coming back next year. And right. Especially the casual players. Well, yeah, casual, casual putting up 10,000. Yeah. You know. Look, I mean, not even casual players. We're pretty serious. And I, I, I want to have more of a shot to min cash. I'm not, I'm not playing to min cash, but I certainly want 60 more people to, to cash than you know, win 10 million as opposed to win 8.3 million. One, right, one out right. of 6,300 yeah. times. So I'm, now, I'm it will be interesting. It, you know, they might just be confidently expecting so many more people because they are going to be running satellites online, which, um, you know, maybe they feel like, wow, we can run, you know, they've set up their satellite schedule and they feel like we can run so many satellites between now and summer that, you know, we're going to, we're confident we can add, you know, why not test that first? A thousand people. Yeah, that's a good point. Like it doesn't, I still don't think it's going to make those people more likely to, 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 Mm, to, you know, more people's satellite. I I just don't think it's going to impact any of that. And, if you see that next year, then sure, go ahead and do it. Uh, and, right. and like I said, guarantee the, the guarantee the event prize pool, but that's much more risky for them, right? Like, yeah. you, know, you guarantee ten million first prize, and you get you know you know twelve million people, twelve million in the prize pool. <laughs> you're still not you know you're not on the hook, right? Um, right? Otherwise, you're on the hook if you guarantee the full prize pool, and and they're not going to do that. Maybe next year they do after they see what the value of satellite entries are. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. but yeah, so I'm not a fan of that. I actually was kind of bummed to see that. I, I, I didn't like that. But, um, you know. At the end of the day, it's probably just a press release hook for them, something for them to be able to say, yeah. for the first time ever, you know, right. we're guaranteeing X amount of dollars. Yeah. But I, I guess it is what it is. Right. Still play it. <laughs> right, right. Yep, so. yep, still going to try to play it. So, yeah, I'm still yeah. just waiting for that rest of that schedule to come out so I can figure out the rest of the time because I'm, I'm already starting to get ready for it. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah, definitely want to figure out dates and travel schedules and stuff like that. So if, for members, uh, you know, hit the forums. There's a thread in there about this year's World Series. So let us know when you're going to be out there. We'll be posting in there as well about our schedules and we'll probably do a meetup again this summer and stuff. So it should be fun. Cool. Well, the people are probably sick of hearing about us because they know Andrew's going to be on in a couple of minutes. Right. So well, let's the, uh, like go on for like a long time. Well, no, I guess not. People just fast forward. <laughs> yeah. They've already hit the yeah. play it the speed button. No. <laughs> you know what's funny? We did um we did a test one podcast. Like if you were at the end of the podcast, let us you know 
tweet, tweeted us, right? We got yeah. a lot of tweets, so thank you for everyone who tweeted yeah. us and <laughs> yes. around to the end of the podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm not going to ask people to tweet us if no, they heard no, this no. because I, I, I don't want to find out that nobody listens to our yeah. introductions. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'll uh, we'll just take a quick little break and we'll get the uh, we'll get to the main event. We'll get uh, Mr. Andrew Brokus in here and. Uh, yeah, that's it. So we'll uh, take a break, come back with some strategy on the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. If you are looking for the best MTG training site on the planet, look no further than TournamentPokerEdge.com. Tournament Poker Edge focuses exclusively on multi-table tournaments and features some of the best live and online pros. No waiting through cash game videos looking for the occasional tournament video. Tournament Poker Edge also offers strategy articles, forums, a member chat room, and much more. So visit TournamentPokerEdge.com and start taking your game to the next level now. Welcome back to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. Time to bring in today's pro, and it's been uh, a long time coming that we get this gentleman on the call. So uh, thank you, Andrew, for coming on. We definitely appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to having a chance to talk to TPA in a slightly more informal setting. I feel like a lot of people have gotten, I mean, people might have watched some of my videos and had a chance to find out like how I think about poker strategy, but I haven't really had a lot of opportunity just to, to talk like people with the people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you talk to yourself a lot in regards to <laughs> And he got so tired of it that he started his own podcast. And I do. I like have little conversations with myself in my videos. Like I ask myself <laughs> questions and I answer them and <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you don't know Andrew's podcast, Thinking Poker Podcast, um, if you enjoy this podcast, you'll certainly enjoy Andrew's podcast because it takes strategy, I think, to an even, an even higher level. Um, the banter between him and Nate is fantastic, and, and I really I enjoy it. I put it on, and I, I think a lot of people put on this podcast as another form of training, and you certainly could do that with the Thinking Poker Podcast. It's a great, great podcast, Andrew. Thank you. It's, it's funny because when we started it, we really were interested in the the interview side of things. And, and that's, right. you know, when, when we have guests on the show, a lot of times we don't even talk strategy with them. I mean, it's great when we can get a good player on and have a chance to talk strategy. But a lot of times we just do the strategy stuff, just myself right. and, and my co-host, Nate. Yeah. And uh, with, with the guests, we really like to have, you know, like conversations with people and, and just get like different takes on poker or talk about stuff that doesn't necessarily come up on other poker podcasts. So for us, it was like, um, the, the interviews were, were kind of the thing that we're most interested in. And, and you know, the talking strategy was we, we kind of looked at as the the sugar that helps the medicine go down in terms of like we didn't <laughs> think a lot of people or not as many people would listen to a show that was just pure interview. So right. I still tend to think like because it's a lot like the biggest the most work for the show is lining up guests, as I'm sure you guys uh, encounter with your podcast as well. Absolutely. Um, and so I'm always kind of like. 
anytime I get sort of lazy about lining up guests, I'm like, oh, we've we've done a couple episodes recently where it's just been me and Nate, or it's just been Nate and me and someone who's kind of like a regular feature on the show. We haven't really had like a, a big headlining interview in a while. And I realized like I'm me and Nate are probably the only people who care about that. And most of our listeners are probably like happy to have more strategy heavy episodes, yeah. but I always feel like I'm letting them down. I think you guys are really good at, at both sides of things, and a couple come to mind um, specifically. Obviously, the Carlos Welch interviews, I think everyone – I mean, I, I, I could tell just from your commenting on it in podcast, people must love that that podcast. It seems well, to I be mean, a huge... what, What's not to love about Carlos? <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's really... Loxie uh, for, for TP years. That's, that's TP's uh, very own Loxie, um, Carlos Welch. The first time we interviewed him, actually, was th- – this, this was the show that he was on from TPE, right? He was on our sort of sister show called TP Live, okay. which is just left, basically less strategy and more just kind of BSing around the table. When we're yeah, together somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, because Nate and I, he was, Carlos is one of the one of the only interviews that we've done in person, like all three of us in the same place when we were in Las Vegas. And, and we met him during a meetup that we had for the Thinking Poker podcast. And then there was maybe like two hours between when we first met Carlos and then when he was going to come up. To, to the hotel room to do the interview. And in that time, I listened to his interview on the the TPE show. So I already had, I mean, just the second you meet Carlos, you're like, oh, this guy's going to make for a good interview. You know, he's yeah. just like extremely funny and charismatic. But then listening to him on your show, I was like, holy shit, this guy is like perfect. Like, <laughs> uh, the, the stories of him like sleeping in the van. And yeah. I was like, this guy is like Nick Cass material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. So it's just nice to have him around. He's just a really, really nice guy. Um, that one was great. Isaac Haxton was fantastic. Um, I mean, put you guys with Ike. It must, you know, it, it kind of hurts my brain to think about the conversation there. But it, that was a great interview. How, how was it interviewing him? Um, he was actually one of the trickier interviews, and it's it was he was extremely generous in terms of, you know, he, he gave us a lot of time. He answered whatever we asked him. He was, he just needed more prompting, I think, than some people did. Like, he didn't give real long answers. So right. it was, we were really happy with the outcome. And it was definitely, I mean, continues to be one of our most popular shows and with good reason. But it was a little less conversational than, than some of our shows. And it, it right. felt a little more like work on my part where I really had to be thinking constantly, like, what do I need to ask him to get him to say interesting things? Because he, he was perfectly willing to say them. He just needed to be, he needed to be prompted. Yeah, right. What, um, I mean, you've obviously been around poker. and I think you started out a lot more with blogging in terms of, not, I mean, you started out as a poker player, but kind of blogging and writing was sort of your first foray into non-at-the-table things, I think. Um, what made you want to start a podcast? And then has it kind of turned into what you expected it to, or has it morphed into something a little bit different than what you anticipated? The The impetus for the podcast, I guess, was just wanting to have, you know, poker is such a many man or <laughs> doggy dog every man for himself uh sort of sort of pursuit uh hopefully there aren't too many people eating other people in the poker <laughs> world. um yeah so it's such a, a doggy dog pursuit and i think it's kind of nice to f- find ways of doing things that are more being like in cooperative relationships with other poker players uh obviously you don't want to be doing that in a in a collusive sort of way at the tables but <laughs> i mean i think coaching is nice for that making videos is nice for that and you're doing a podcast with someone who's uh, Nate and I really weren't great friends until we started doing the, the podcast together. We would see each other like once or twice a year at, at, during the WSOP. So it was nice just to have an impetus to, to talk to him. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the things you realize as you get older is like friendships aren't just automatic. You know, you have to you have to like 
talk to people and at least for me <laughs> I kind of don't <laughs> but it's like when you're like in, in school your friends are just kind of like the people who sit next to you in class or whatever <laughs> right uh, I don't know like I don't I don't usually just like up and call people for no reason so it's nice like actually having an impetus to talk to someone who I, I think we both agree like we would like to talk more often but neither of us is really just going to like make a phone call and be like hey how's it going so I mean having yeah. an impetus to like talk to him and then also to talked to so many other interesting people in, in the poker world. And we've kind of joked that Tommy Angelo was like the reason we just to like have an excuse to talk ah, to Tommy Angelo. And then, you know, whether, whether or not we ever did any more episodes after Tommy Angelo, who was our second interview, <laughs> uh, we were just thinking, well, you know, that, at least we had a chance to talk to Tommy Angelo and, and now you can throw in I mean, any number of um, really interesting people on the show. And actually I'll, I'll drop an exclusive on here. Uh, this is a show that will be coming out. Um, in about a week and a half. I don't know. When, when, is, when is this going to air? Uh, this right, will probably well. go up tomorrow morning. Uh, yeah, so about a week and a half, uh, Mike McDonald is going to be on our Ooh, show. Ooh, that's going to so be great. That, that, that was a really fantastic interview. That's, that's one to look forward to for sure. Are you gonna, did you ask him about the stare? Uh, we did not. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard about that? Uh, the, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen his stare. Yeah, well, there was a lot of talk about this. Like he introduced this new stare at TCA uh, oh, that a lot of people were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even see the the live coverage, but that's what I saw a lot of people tweeting about his his stare. That's uh, <laughs> funny. Um, I do think that's a, that's an important thing, actually. Your your look. I mean, it's really intimidating to play with someone who has a yeah. good stare. And yeah. it, I mean, I, I think it can kind of unhinge your opponents. It can. Yeah. It certainly makes you harder to read, but I also think it, in some cases, makes your opponents easier to read for you. Um, and right. if you really, if you really have a lot of confidence in your stare, I think that it makes. I mean, for me anyway, I feel more comfortable staring at people, and and therefore I'm more likely to get information from them when I like. If I feel not confident, then I'm less likely to like look at somebody because I'm afraid I'm going to give away something. So right. when I'm really feeling like I'm in a confident place, then I can like you know, stare somebody down and feel like I'm, I'm winning the information more. Like I'm getting more out of that contest of gazes than, than he or she is. <laughs> contest of gazes. I like that. That's going to be the subtitle for this, uh, for this podcast. That'd be my new video series. <laughs> a theory series on gazes. Yeah, that would be um, a tricky thing to do via, via, uh, uh, you know, w- without a camera fixed on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really liked your Ed Miller interview as well, although I have one gripe about it. I listened to it on the way to the World Series, uh, to, to my flight to the World Series last year. And I, it was so great that I immediately downloaded Playing the Player. I think that's the name of his book, right? Uh, yeah, and, and read it on the plane. And I think it's a big mistake to try to read something that theoretical and, and try to put it into action right away um, in, in, you know, in bigger tournaments and uh, more, you know, more important situations. It kind of threw my game off. So just, just, a, just a little, little, little quirk there. Um, but it drove me to download his book and, and, and buy it because um, I just love the conversation you had with him. He, you know, he really, he's really great, great interview, I, I would assume, um, and easy to talk to. He seems like a nice guy. Yeah, all those things are true. And I actually, had, I'd never met him in person, but then um, during the WSOP 2013, the, the most recent one, uh, he, we had dinner together and I was planning on buying him dinner, but he ended up insisting on, on buying since he insisted on going to a vegan restaurant. Um, and yeah, so just yeah, super nice, very generous guy. And uh, hopefully he's someone we'll have on again soon. We don't have specific plans for that, but I, I think it's unlikely that he would say no when anytime we asked him to come back. But yeah, I agree. That was one of our best. Yeah. So for people who, okay, so a lot of people know your podcast, but I'm not sure how many people know your background. Do you want to give us a little bit into how you got into poker and how you came up and, and how this all started for you? 
Uh, yeah, gladly. I was, I, mean, I guess I really started playing poker in college, kind of the, around what people would call the moneymaker boom, which I used to say that's like when, when everyone started, but I guess that's starting to get less true. And it, we just, um, we did an interview recently with uh, Ryan, who's a, a TP member, Ryan yep. Van Sanford. Um, and he just started like a year or two. So I think there's like more and more people now who have, who have started post moneymaker boom, but it used to be that everyone had started at that time. Like anyone who was yeah. a serious poker player had started around then. Yeah. Um, so that, that was about when I started and I was in, in college during that time. So uh, my roommate and I like got into playing poker and there was this dorm tournament. I think it was, I think it was $10 to enter and we'd play like twice a week. I don't know how people got away with this because it was just like openly hosting. I mean, no, no rank was being taken, but uh, I mean, they were like openly having a poker tournament in a dorm lounge <laughs> twice a week. <laughs> um, There's a lot worse things that happen in dorms. So <laughs> I'm sure yeah, they were happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were happy. They were just playing poker. <laughs> but like, that was my impetus for doing any kind of like studying poker. It was just like, I really wanted to win this, this dorm tournament. Uh, and that led me to read like, the super system. I guess there weren't really too many poker books out at that time, but it led me to read super system anyway, which then, you know, I instantly started like through that calling it off with five, six suited because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> suited connectors. Right. Um, but I mean, that, so that was like how I initially sort of got interested in it. And then I started playing free. I was, I was very nitty about ever putting uh, my own money online. I had no idea like what sites could be trusted. I, I assumed none of them could be trusted and they were all going to take my money as the first opportunity. So I was like only doing free rolls and, and uh, trying to build up a little bit of a roll that way, which I, I would occasionally get some and then I would just turn right around and, and lose it immediately. So I, I can't claim it's one of those stories where I just like never made a deposit and ran it off from a free roll. Um, basically, I, I got comfortable enough with certain sites from playing their free rolls that and then like having a balance in my account for a little while. Sometimes I was able to cash out something before I went broke. So uh, eventually I got comfortable making a, making a deposit on Pacific Poker. Well, in retrospect, you were right about most of them not being trustworthy, <laughs> taking your money. They were actually more trustworthy ones. I mean, because that was like when you could play on Pacific and Party and, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I mean, in, obviously in, in retrospect, like you being full tilt didn't turn out so well, but yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, uh, I graduated from college with a degree in philosophy, which kind of limited my career prospects. And I had actually been working, I actually was offered a full-time job in Chicago because I, I had been working, I went to the University of Chicago and I had been working with a nonprofit organization that um, that ran like a competitive debate league in the after, or like, like an after school program basically in the Chicago public schools. Uh, so they offered me a full-time job when I graduated, but uh, which really is not a smart thing for a philosophy major to turn down. But my girlfriend uh, was living in Boston at the time, and, and we had been doing like a long-distance relationship for three years. So I ended up moving to Boston instead, and I was like trying to find work in the the nonprofit sector, which is like what I was interested in. And uh, these jobs are just the, the jobs I was applying for were just like awful, I mean, kind of like pamphleteering or yeah. um, the, the kind of people who would like stand on the streets and ask for money for this or that organization. It was like that that kind of stuff that I was applying for. And I wasn't even like getting callbacks for, <laughs> for that kind of thing. So like not only were there jobs, I mean, there were jobs I didn't even want um, that I was like overqualified for. And I also wasn't getting for whatever reason, I wasn't even like get, really getting an opportunity to apply for them. Um, so I was feeling kind of crappy about that, but I was making, uh, I don't know, maybe like $50 a week playing poker. Um, and, but I was also like pretty actively trying to get better at poker. And as I discovered things like two plus two, I realized, well, you know, there are people who really are making pretty serious money playing poker. And it seems like I might be able to make enough money playing poker 
even if I'm not playing quite full time, that I could just kind of start the nonprofit organization that I'm interested in instead of trying to find like a shitty job with somebody else's. Right. Um, it's okay for me to say shitty, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we've, I, had, we've had Big Dog and Danny and 13 on here, so don't yeah, worry about I, I just I, I know you guys have more than one podcast, so I wasn't sure if like, one of them was the more family-friendly show or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've definitely heard plenty of profanity being spewed on the <laughs> yeah. podcast before. I just wasn't sure. Yeah, but we're good. We're good. Say what you want. Go for it. If you don't say it on Thinking Poker Podcast, maybe this is your outlet. <laughs> <laughs> Unleash a stream of profanities. Go for it, Andrew. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I basically started a similar organization in the Boston Public Schools, one that was similar to what I had been doing in Chicago before, like an after-school um, competitive debate program. And my thinking was, if if that ever really takes off and gets to the point where you know, we convince the Boston Public Schools to invest in it and we get like some foundations to invest in it, and uh, I just you know, if it ever gets to the point where it's like a real nonprofit and not just something that I'm doing in my spare time, then um, that could be my job is like running, running that organization. And until then poker can help me to make ends meet and maybe even give me a little leftover money to invest in the, in the organization. So I did that for about four years. I guess that'd be like 2004 until 2008. And eventually the organization did actually get to the point where um, we're ready to hire a full-time executive director. But by then poker was going so much better than you know I ever could have anticipated that it would in, in 2004 that I wasn't necessarily looking to have a full-time job. Yeah. And to be honest, I wasn't necessarily the most qualified person to run the organization either. I mean, I had I had experience working in education, but I'd never actually been a teacher. I was still relatively young. Um, so we did end up hiring a, a full-time person who was not me to, to take over the organization. And um, he's really done a, a fantastic job with it. It's grown quite a bit since I left. Um, I don't have a whole lot to do with it anymore other than like cutting them a check once a year, and, you know, occasionally going out to volunteer when uh, when there's something that they especially need my help with. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, it was really impressive for you as, you know, as a young person right out of school to, to take the initiative and do that. I think that's that's amazing. Um, and one thing I've seen in my life in startup world is that it's definitely a different person to take a an organization from zero to 60 and then from 60 to 100. Like it, it you know, the person that you brought in to run it probably couldn't get it off the ground to start with. It's a, just a different skill set. So it makes sense that, you know, someone else comes in after you give birth to it because it's really a, a different type of personality. Yeah, but that makes sense. It's really, really, really impressive. So uh, why are you still running TPA? <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why we're still at six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as, as the guys know, I don't really do anything. I just make noise. I just make noise on, on Skype management calls. <laughs> Actually, I mean, from TPE, we uh, it, it's funny because we did we did build it like at night on weekends, and we were talking about this last night. Um, we really do did have that true startup mentality. It was let's just start making something and start refining it as time goes by, and we get reaction from people. Um, and put in just a foot in the pedal and, and start moving. So it, it does have that characteristic. So maybe Andrew's right. Maybe we should go hire a professional CEO and get rid of me and you, Derek. <laughs> maybe Andrew's available. <laughs> I, I do think that I, I, I call it momentum, but that idea of just like starting something and, and starting to yeah. do it is, I mean, that's always anything that I've done in my life that's been successful 
as it has not been a matter of me like planning it out and saying, yeah. okay, first I'm going to take this step and then I'm going to take that yeah. step and like laying all the groundwork first. Cause I thought about taking that approach with, with the Boston debate league. And um, it's like basically taking a full year to, to try to put some, some infrastructure in place before I started doing any programming. And uh, eventually I decided like, well, Hey, that's no fun. You know, like that's yeah. the fun part is working with the, working with the students. So I wanted to like start doing that right away. And I also thought, well, maybe if they can demonstrate the value of the program, then that'll help right. to attract versus like me just showing up as a 21 year old, like recent college graduate right. and part-time professional poker player and being like, no, really this organization is going to do some good things. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. hundred thousand dollars, you know? Um, <laughs> Yeah. To just like just start doing it, and you know, best case scenario, it it really takes off. And even if it doesn't, at least you've done something worthwhile in, in the yeah. short term. I mean, I was working with maybe only like twenty students or something the first year, but you know, at least like those twenty students are a little bit better off than than they would have been. And if it really turns into something great, but yeah, um, and that, that momentum is the right word too, because once you start. Like, you just start doing more, like, it becomes more natural to do the next thing. Inertia is really, like, the biggest thing to get over when, when you start something new. And the action of actually finishing something encourages you to do the next thing, and it builds upon it, and you learn a lot about what you should be doing next. It's really hard to plan for everything that's going to happen. Yeah, so, you don't even know, like, what you're going to need, ultimately. Yeah, you don't know what the variables are. You just kind of have to do it and then react um, as you do it. But then you have something at the end. Like, like, and I think Bill Gates said this, but um, people overestimate what they can do in the short term, but they underestimate what they can do in the long term. And so you just kind of have to do stuff and, even if it, and, and just keep moving. And then when you look back three, six months, a, a year, like, wow, we actually made – you know, a business, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, even though it feels like it's, you know, not, not enough is happening. If you're continually going, good things happen. So, yeah. yep. And so, I anyway. will say yep. one of the first people who I um, approached to like join our, our board um, to, to be like a person other than me who would care about the organization, uh, I, I kind of explained this plan to her and she was helpful in, in a lot. Not that there's any chance she's going to hear this, but <laughs> she, she was, she was uh, helpful in a lot of ways. But um, when, when I told her this, this plan of like, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of get it started and do the programming first. And then hopefully that'll convince the Boston public schools to, to invest in it. Not that they're going to be the, the only funders, but that they would, you know, they're, they're a pretty significant funder now. Um, it's the only time I've ever seen someone like not ironically do a spit take, you know, like she was drinking water and she was just like spat it out and, <laughs> and just a hundred percent genuine. Like she was like, good luck with that. <laughs> um, so she, she did decline to join the board. Um, but uh, it, it happened, you know, that the Boston public schools really did uh, buy into it and, and they've invested over a couple of years, probably close to a million dollars wow. in, in the Boston debate league now. Um, so jokes on her. <laughs> impressive. Yes. Very impressive. But it, it really it was the same thing with the podcast, too, where, like I was saying, I mean, Nate and I were just like, well, we like talking to each other. We know a couple of interesting people who will come on the show, for sure. Shane Schlager was one of our first, actually, he was our very first guest. Um, so like, we know a couple of people who will definitely come on the show, and then we'll just see what happens. Like, maybe people will find it. Maybe people will like it. Maybe people will agree to be on the show, and, and you know, maybe we'll continue to make time for it. Maybe none of those right. things will happen. But, you know, no matter what, we'll put out a little bit of interesting content. We'll have some conversations that we enjoy that hopefully other people will enjoy as well. And uh, the, the value of it is not contingent on what happens in the future. You know, you're, you're banking a little bit. It's, it's like a semi bluff, you know, like you're yeah. you're banking a little bit on it paying off big in the right. end, but there's still you, you value even if that doesn't happen. That's awesome. I have two questions about Nate. Is Nate the Nate from two plus two that used to just sign his th- his his post Nate period? Is that that Nate? 
or is that uh, a different? Yeah, it probably is Nate period because he actually got banned from two plus two. He had a different screen name and he got banned <laughs> from two plus two for like just you know one of Mason Nami's like petty, um, yeah, petty tirades. So he got banned and then he rejoined as Nate with a period. But he used to be like Nate with a couple of numbers after it. Okay, I, I think that is. I think I remember. See, yeah, I think that's him. Did he have a Denver? Did he have the yes. John Elway? Yeah. Okay, all right. Thank you, because I remember that. I could never make the connection if that was him. Um, well, it's funny, too. I, do, you, do you know what Nate looks like? No, I do not know what Nate looks like. Uh, I have I, a visual I, picture, I, though. I won't be offended by this. He's, <laughs> I think this describes me as well, but he's kind of nerdy looking. Um, but the thing is, I didn't, for a long time, I didn't know what he looked like, but I knew he had, not that I actually thought he looked like John Elway, but just you get used to seeing something <laughs> with their avatar, and you like associate it with that person. So that's right. when you do meet Nate, and he doesn't look very much like John Elway. Then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know what? I did look him up just now, and I I have seen this picture. But yes, he does not look like John Elway. Um, <laughs> but not how, yeah, but that's how I pictured him after the uh, the podcast, pretty much. I mean, he sounds like a smart guy. Looks like a smart guy. He's, he's for sure a smart guy. Someone actually said when when they eventually saw pictures of us, they thought that Nate looked like what they thought I would look like, and I looked oh. like what that Nate would look like. <laughs> Which I think is a compliment to my appearance, ultimately, because I think Nate, Nate has a really, really nice podcasting voice. Yeah, well, the, that was, the that fact was my... that they thought that voice would be attached to my body is pretty funny. <laughs> and that was um, that was my second question. How has he not been doing some sort of audio work in the past? Because he has the perfect radio voice. He sounds like an announcer. He sounds like a radio broadcaster. Yeah, it's really, um, uh, I don't know, dick shriveling to... <laughs> <laughs> to work with him like you just know no matter what I mean I, I guess on the other hand there's like it kind of demotivates me to even try because like there's, there's no I'm going to sound half as good as Nate does on a microphone <laughs> yeah it's great you guys make a really good team um, like, so you left off with the, the debate league and, and um, but still how, how did poker turn into you know something that became such a, a big part of your life and something you became so successful at like what was the growth like in, in that regards I guess the the blog ended up being kind of significant to it. I don't remember when exactly I started blogging, but I guess it was pretty early in my career, maybe like two years in or so. And uh, I've been like a real active member of, of 2 Plus 2, which especially like in the early days, the MTT community was just full of um, really good players. And people oh, yeah. were probably a little more open about sharing information than they are now because it wasn't, it wasn't quite so much that you were just playing against each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you did, but you, there were so many other people playing as well. I, I think it's just a little bit more of a, um, a secret. And, like, fewer people knew about 2 plus 2. It was just a, like, slightly safer to discuss poker strategy there at that time. So there was, yeah. like, a lot of really high-quality poker content that was available there. And it was also, there was a big gulf between what you could get from, like, a 2 plus 2 versus anywhere else. This is, like, pre-card runners, so there's no video training sites. Um, or maybe it's, like, real early days of card runners. But there aren't, like, video training sites, um, you know, just giving away all this valuable information for, yeah. for nothing a month. Um, which is sign up for tournament poker if, if you haven't already and you're listening. It's a really exciting. But <laughs> um, just, you know, giving away like really valuable information for, for very, very little per month and there's not so many books out there and, and things. So like knowing about two plus two really gave you a, a big edge and that helped a lot. Um, but it, there does get to be a point where you're not learning so much from forums anymore. Um, because there's just fewer and fewer people you're going to be able to learn something from or fewer and fewer things you can learn that way. And being able to teach yourself things starts to become more important and being able to analyze your own game and, and figure things out for yourself. So I mean, I've always enjoyed writing, and, and the blog was kind of an impetus for me to 
I really had no no one knew who I was other than like members of two plus two at the time, so I didn't have an expectation of like having a lot of readers. It was mostly just an impetus for me to review every session that I did. You know, I, I initially my intention was to post at least one hand from every session that I played, which you know I would maybe play four days a week or something. Um, I, I, I've never been a person who played put in like real big hours. I mean, if I played, um, if I averaged fifteen hours a week over the course of a year, that was uh, that was a good year. Uh, of, of actual playing, I mean, studying and stuff counts too. Right. Right. Um, so f- for me, like four times a week, I'm making a blog post, I'm posting a hand, I'm posting my thoughts on it. And uh, I mean, I guess, you know, word of mouth or whatever spread around a little bit. So like some people from 2 plus 2 knew that it was there. And it just, you know, just over the course of a couple of years of doing that consistently. But it, it started as something that I was doing for myself once again, and then it just got momentum. Um, and then, you know, some people did start to find it. And I started writing for 2 Plus 2 magazine, and uh, it, just, it led to some more writing opportunities from there. Do I have the justified brag of being your first coaching student? You do. Yeah, ah, sure. right. I'm so glad. To, so I'll tell that. I'll tell that story. So um, Andrew and I do go back a bit um, in re, in that regard. So I, re, I in 2000. I don't know if it was 2006 or 2007. Probably 2007. Uh, yeah, I don't think I was coaching as early as 2000. Yeah. Um, I had found two plus two in 2006, and everything Andrew said is 100 percent right. I mean, you know, you have Sean Deeb and Charter and Andrew. I mean. I, 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 the list goes on and on of, of the people who were posting in MTT community. Yeah, I, I didn't even bother trying to make a list because there's just yeah. so many. Yeah, I mean, it's just the first couple people that come to mind. I, and I remember, like, printing out a post from Clayton about, like, the stages of, you know, MTT. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. You remember that one? <laughs> like, that's, I, print, I remember, like, printing that out and carrying it with me to work and, and reading it on breaks and stuff. And, like, it just, like, there was such an edge to be gained from being at that place at that time. Um, and so I definitely confirm that. But I, I rec- so I was up to plus two two thousand six, and around two thousand seven, I think um, I just put a post out there. Hey, I'm thinking of doing coaching. Anyone interested to that effect? I think um, interested in getting coaching. Anyone interested? And 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 I swear to God, Andrew, I was hoping you would respond. It was <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> I don't know why. I didn't really. We never talked before, but I really liked your style of posting and. You wrote back saying, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing coaching. Let's do a trial session." So, um, so first of all, thank you for responding to me and giving me that trial session. And then um, it, I went on and did a full coaching session schedule with you. And for like three years, before people really started to catch up, I mean, the stuff that I learned in those ten hours put me ahead of <laughs> way ahead of the curve. Like 2007 to 2010 were like beautiful years online <laughs> and especially in MTTs because you know the things that you learn there like there was just such a, a gulf between you know good players and, and bad players then um, obviously things have changed since Black Friday but yeah okay I'm glad to have that justified brag because because uh, I could wear that like a badge <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad you found it helpful but I will say your, your success was frustrating to me because you and I talked a couple times about staking and yeah. um, it's, I think it happened on two different occasions that we had like agreed to, to terms and what you were going to be playing and to a start date. And then like a couple of days before that start date, you had like a really significant win and you're like, I don't yeah. need staking anymore. Um, and then like, so we did that once and then you decided you wanted to move up in stakes and you were ready to, to talk about staking again. And we talked about it again and work things out. And we're going to start on March 1st or whatever. And then February, 20th, you win something else big, and you're like, ah, oh, never mind, I'm on second. <laughs> I remember both of those times. The first time, I won a the nightly 109, I guess it was like 11 p.m., 
or 10 p.m. Tw- twice in one week. And I was like, all right, Andrew, thank you for, <laughs> for all the advice and the coaching. And uh, sorry, you're not making money on this one. And then I, and I think the next time it was the nightly 100K. Um, little brags there. More brags for me on this podcast. But yeah, <laughs> finally, <laughs> sorry. finally, I got my chance, though, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. April yeah. 1st, 2011. We yeah. decided we're gonna start. <laughs> we're gonna start some coaching. I transfer. I transfer some money to your Poker Stars account and to your Full Tilt Poker account. <laughs> you run bad with me. Yeah, and Sorry. I end up with like an extra. I don't even remember how much it is. Like, it's like it's like an extra ten thousand dollars or something stuck on Full Tilt. That, uh, yeah, yeah. That I wouldn't yeah. otherwise had on there. So, although uh, on Black Friday, I I just play. I I had it open. And I was able to stay online, and I played, and I sh- I final tabled three things, and I ha- I ended up with another like two thousand in my account, and they let me keep it. So I don't know, ho- hopefully no one uh, <laughs> no one no one does anything about that after hearing this. But I I ended up with more in my account on Black Friday than I probably should have. So we ran okay. good in that regard. Hopefully I'll be seeing that money soon. <laughs> you should be. I got the confirmation. It's coming. So yeah, it's it's looking <laughs> good. Yeah, it is looking good. It is looking good. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, so you know, a nod to your to exactly what you said about poker in that 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 time period. It was it definitely was a golden age, and there was um, two plus two was the place to be. So so you were there. Um, how did you turn that early conversation we had about coaching into sort of you know the person like the personality that you have in poker now? And I mean, I know you, the podcast is a big part of it, but um, you know, what is coaching like for you? What has it been like since Black Friday? You know, those, those types of of things after after the the uh, the initial rush and easy times. You know, I don't even remember like how I got how I found my first coaching students. I guess I just put up a thing on my blog. I don't. Maybe there was a place you could advertise on like two plus two. I, I never paid for advertising. Um, hashtag Nick Guest. But uh, <laughs> I I don't even know how I advertised the first ones. But yeah, I mean, I, I did I did coaching for a, a couple of years, and I mean, I think I was I was helpful to those people, but. I was, um, I didn't have like a real fully formed philosophy of coaching. I just sort of like, you know, talked to them about poker, which I think is all that most coaches ever do anyway. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, it's something that I've always taken very seriously, like precisely because I, I've been sort of like, I've never actually hired a coach myself. Um, and just cause I'm kind of like nitty about these things. And I think that if, if I knew that there would be a coach who was like as dedicated to their students as, as I would be, or as I am, I would be a lot more likely to hire them, but I would just, I feel like I'd constantly be wondering, I just, I feel like there's so many people who do coaching just kind of half-heartedly, and are just like, I don't know, I guess I can like look at your hands and talk to you about poker for some stuff. Um, And so I've always kind of taken my relationship with my students very seriously and like tried to think about how I could be most helpful to them. So over a couple of years, I'd kind of evolved a, a coaching style that I think was, was pretty helpful and was very sort of Socratic and designed to help students um, learn things, like kind of realize things for themselves. So I was kind of like guiding their learning more so than just like telling them a bunch of facts that they might or might not remember or might or might not really know how to put into practice. Uh, and I expected that on Black that Black Friday was going to be like a big hit to my coaching business uh, or my American business, which was probably like two thirds of my students were Americans. Um, and I did lose most of the American students that I had. I mean, I, I like gave people the opportunity to have refunded like unused coaching if they weren't going to be playing poker seriously anymore, which many people took me up on. Um, but I actually got a lot of new American students also, and it's kind of ended up better than ever because what ended up happening was all these 
online players started showing up in in poker rooms, people who had never really bothered to go to poker rooms before. And so live games got a lot harder. And there were a lot of, um, not professionals necessarily, but pretty serious amateurs, people who maybe own small businesses. I mean, you guys know the kind of people who play, um, like the kind of non-professionals who play live poker. And there are people who were accustomed to being competitive in those games, maybe even winning a little bit in, in the games that they were playing. They weren't like they were crushers. They weren't professionals, but they were accustomed to like making a bit of money playing two five at their local casino. And suddenly the games got a lot harder. And there's these kids in there who are forgetting them light, and they're just kind of doing all this stuff. And the guys are like, I don't really know what's going on, but I know that I'm getting outplayed, and uh, and they wanted someone to help them with that. And I think that's a place where the the kind of like brand that I established for myself ended up being really helpful because. These aren't guys who have a deep background in poker theory. They might not have ever read 2 plus 2 or watched a coaching video or maybe they've read a a poker book, but they're not familiar with a lot of the jargon. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I'm able to work with them in a not condescending way. Like I can can just only imagine some of the conversations that I've had with some of my students. Like it's really hard for me to imagine um, other, a lot of other poker professionals like I guess not being condescending in those same situations. Like when you realize someone doesn't understand the concept of equity and you're like, I'm going to have to, like, I think a lot of people, even if they didn't mean to be condescending, just wouldn't even know where to start with that. Like, how do I talk to someone who doesn't understand equity? So like the the fact that I've had a lot of experience teaching, even outside of poker, like I mentioned, like doing a lot of work in education, not just with students, but you know, I've also done a decent bit of like teaching teachers how to teach their students. And I just, I had kind of a deeper background in education than I think a lot of poker players do. And so that enabled me to to be a help to these these guys, and they make great students because I mean professionals are really concerned about. Uh, I mean, it's just it's hard to teach something to a professional like they already know a lot about poker. So it's really great when you can get someone who is a very smart person, a very driven person, but not someone who's had a lot of exposure to to poker theory because they learn very quickly. Um, you're, you're, they're able to make progress with you very quickly. Um, but, and it's also, it's not real demanding on my part. Like I'm not necessarily teaching them stuff that's like the cutting edge of poker theory. It's stuff that I know really, really well and I'm really confident in. So I feel like I can, um, it's like, it's not, it's not too demanding on, on my part. They get a lot right. out of it. It's, it. It just ends up being a, a great situation. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I'm sure your coaching style has evolved since we did those lessons uh, several years ago. But I mean, just from that time, I will I will say that I love the fact that you made me think about you know why I'm doing something as opposed to just teaching me what to do. That's um, why we call it thinking poker. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> perfect branding. Um, because like you, I, re- I recall you gave me you give me homework and you'd ask me to kind of think about you know what. I can't remember all the exact examples, but I, I recall like literally like getting out paper and writing down like what what hands I you know writing out ranges for the first time like like okay I'm not just I'm gonna I'm gonna do this because I think that this is what he you know the range that he potentially has and like actually think about the range as opposed to just kind of you know give, give myself like a hot warm cold <laughs> um, <laughs> like 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 feel um, and and write that out and then you know that builds. You know, the intuition, I think, over, you know, once you start practicing that, your intuition gets better and it builds the intuition. But, um, but thinking through all the reasons why, like, I remember even just like the first time I, I recall there was a, a conversation we had about raising to, I think, the, I remember that we were talking about a hand that was blind to like 75, 150, and you explained, I don't need to raise to 450. Like, this is how early it was, right? Like, you were like, <laughs> you don't need to raise to 450 because, 
what you do for 450 will, uh, you know, 450 will have the same effect as probably like 325 in this situation. And I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. That, that you know, think, instead of just doing 3x like, uh, you know, everyone else is doing, like, think about what will make it, you know, influence the actions that I want to happen um, was really helpful. So I, I, I'm sure your style has evolved. I'm sure it's still based on that. Like, how, how would you say your style is different now from when you started? Like, what have you learned about coaching and what have you changed? I'm actually surprised that, that I was giving you homework. I don't remember doing that. I, um, I think I asked you for things to work on. I don't remember if I asked you. or you It gave was a good thing to ask for because I mean that yeah. that's that's like the biggest thing that I've added now is I've just like increasingly formalized the. Um, I've just found that like most people, I end up working on the same things with most people, and the the starting point is different. But you know, th- these are things that have also been the subject of a lot of my my TPE videos and my coaching now is is kind of integrated with those videos. So the idea is that like, if we're going to work on hand reading, I'll tell people, go watch my hand reading series, practice those things, and then come to me. And basically we'll like the one-on-one coaching starts where the hand reading series on TPE leaves off. Right. Uh, so the, like the, the TPE videos are part of the homework. Right. Um, and that, that, that's among other things it saves people a lot of money because they they can watch for free stuff that, you know, rather than paying me, um, you know, by the hour to, to tell them those things. Um, so it, it's integrated there, but then I also now have like actual homework assignments that I give people where it's yeah. like, you know, here, here's a hand and you know, basically, it's basically like a worksheet that walks through a hand and asks a bunch of questions that are what you should be asking yourself during the hand. So it'll say like, what range do you think he has when he raises pre-flop? Now we see the flop. How well do you think this flop interacts with his range? Yeah. How well does it interact with your range? What should your value target be? What should your value plan be? Okay, now that you bet and he calls, how does that change his range? Now we see the turn card. How does do? Does this change your plan? What should you do now? Just like it's basically like step by step because this is the biggest thing that people usually ask me for. It is kind of like what's the thought process I should be going through, or that's right. I mean, thought process is what I try to focus on, not just in my coaching, but really in my TPE videos as well. Um, you know, I've done these big series on um, on hand reading, on value betting. I've got the one on bluffing that's going up right now. And what you know, what I try to give people is like a rubric for for thinking through these things rather than just saying. Because you're never going to play the same hand twice. So to look back in retrospect, and I mean, maybe it helps you sleep better at night to know, like, um, to answer that nagging question of, like, what I should have done in that situation. But realistically, what you're really concerned about is not what you should have done in that situation, but what can I learn from that situation yeah. that will be right. useful to me in, in future situations. So right. a, lo- a lot of the coaching focuses on trying to figure out, like, things that people already know and understand and do well, how to apply those things to other situations that they're less comfortable with. I think the I think the, the homework was a primitive form of the how does my flop has how, how does the flop impact his range um, as we did, as we thought it was you know and then how does the turn impact his range and and and, uh, and I, that leads me to I think what's my favorite video of yours on TPE is um, uh, what's the what's the title of the one where you talk about um, how does he play his monsters how does he play his draws and how does he play his air and you go through that whole. Yeah, that's process. The that's the hand. Okay, it's the hand reading system. That, so, can you can you explain that for the listeners? Because I think that's a great way. Um, if you're not, if you have, you know, if you're not a TP member, you should join first of all. <laughs> um, but not, but not for the shameless plug there. Um, th- this this series is is one of the best on TP. So, if you could just explain that that concept of the monsters uh, draws and air and, and thought process, that'd be great. It's basically a, a simplified method of hand reading. So, you know, a lot of people. Handwriting is a very intimidating idea, especially if you're thinking of it in kind of like Daniel Negreanu 
terms where you're trying, you're thinking that you should be able to call your opponent's exact hand and say like he has exactly this. That's really not the goal of hand reading. And I think it, I mean, I go with hand reading because it's such an established term. But what right. you're really interested in is range reading. You know, you're just trying to get a sense of like what are the hands this guy would play that way. And in fact, a lot of times the specific hand isn't even that important. Um, quite often. Whether he has aces or kings isn't terribly important. Uh, often, you know, it may not, it may even be the case that like whether he has top pair or a set isn't really important, or top pair or flush isn't really important. Right. Um, it's just a matter of you, you kind of at least as a starting point, and, and there is room to refine this further, and there are advantages to be had from refining this further. But as a starting point, I think it can be useful just to get a kind of a broad sense of what sort of hand your opponent has. And in general, I think that a lot of people tend to treat their hands, and not without good reason, a lot of players tend to treat their hands as falling into one of three categories. There are like monster hands, which are often hands that people are willing to get all in with, especially in tournaments when you're not that deep. But in any event, they're hands that people want to play big pots with, whether or not it's actually an all-in pot. Like People, people actively want to put money into the pot when they, when they have a monster hand. Uh, and then there are, there are hands that have no showdown value, whether... I mean, it actually, there is kind of an important distinction between draws versus hands that like don't connect with the board at all, but they both share the characteristic that they're not very likely to win unless they improve. So they're both hands with which people would prefer to have fault equity. Like they're your number one priority when you don't have any chance of winning at showdown unless you improve is, um, it should be trying to make your opponent fold if, if that's a realistic thing to do, but it should be right. on your mind anyway. So, um, there's, there's like that category of hands that don't have showdown value. Um, and then there are marginal hands, which are hands that people are usually, they think there's a good chance they have the best hand, but they don't want to play a big pot with it. And so right. they're, they're trying to get it to showdown cheaply. And, there's differences in the way people will, will play these hands. So usually a lot of aggression will indicate either a monster hand or a bluff, but is not very likely to indicate a marginal hand. Um, right. There are certain players who like overestimate or, or put too much importance on protecting their hand. And so in those cases, they might like really go crazy when they just flop top pair. But in general, like when people have a marginal hand, they're trying to keep the pot small. And so when your opponent does something to indicate that he's keeping the pot small, you know, that, that will be an indication that he doesn't have a monster versus when he does something to, you know, he has a choice of keeping the pot small and he chooses not to, he's telling you that he has a monster. So, you know, regardless of which monster he has, it's not really important if you have something like top pair, top kicker. A lot of times, I think people will overvalue a hand like that or feel like they have to pay off a river bet because they're like, well, I have I have top pair, top kicker. How can I fold for one bet on the river after the turn checked through? Nice. Um, but, you know, if you think that your opponent is not going to bet a marginal hand, which is, you know, like you can beat marginal hands and you can beat plus, but you can't beat monsters. So if in a situation where your opponent wouldn't bet a marginal hand, which many people don't, like a lot of poker right. players are, are overly passive, especially right. on the river, they, they like, especially in live poker, um, they really like yeah. to see showdowns. So you know, if it's like they wouldn't bet a marginal hand, then either they're bluffing or they have a monster, and you, know, you can try to figure out how often they're bluffing. But again, like passive players probably don't bluff as much as right. you might be inclined to think they do. And you can really make a lot of money even without having a very good idea of what exactly your opponent has just by realizing, well, I can really only beat a bluff here, and I don't think he's bluffing all that often. So even though my hand seems strong, I'm going to fold it. Yep. And uh, I enjoyed during that series where you actually took the notepad out and you know put to put together the, the ranges for each of the categories the hands that you think you know that fall in each category and then as the hand went on you were able to eliminate hands um 
because they wouldn't have done that if they had one of those hands. They, you know, if, if they, it just doesn't match the pattern. Um, and then you were able to get a much clearer hand range read by the end of the hand. And what I liked about that is, I, you know, I did that for a long time after, you know, for like at least three weeks, you know, when I was playing. And it definitely, like, writing it out definitely helps you, you know, internalize it and, and make it part of your intuition when you're playing and, and helps you clarify your thought process when you're playing later on uh, because the, you know, the engagement of multiple senses, I think, really helps it, you. Well, it shows you also that you should be handwriting all along. I mean, I think the, one of the big mistakes a lot of people make is they wait until they have a big decision. You know, like often they're facing like a river shove or something, right. and then they decide they're, they're going to start trying to read the hand at that point. And so they say, well, you know, a flush draw maybe like a backdoor flush draw came in. So like, you know, a cl- there was only one club on the flop, but then clubs came on the turn and river and your opponent shoves. And so people would be inclined to say like, well, I guess he has a flush. And if, if all you, you only do your hand reading on the river, you might miss the fact that in fact, this player called a bet on the flop. And right. that really limits that, that greatly limits the number of two club combinations he could have in his hand. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and also like hand reading matters, not just when you have a big decision, but something I try to emphasize in my other series, like in, in my, my getting paid series, is even when you're sure you have the best hand, even when you have the nuts, like hand reading isn't just about figuring out whether or not you have the best hand. Like you want to know, you want to have an idea of what kind of hand your opponent has so that you know what to do with, with your, with the nuts. Like right. if I think my opponent has a, a monster when I have the nuts, then I want to fast play it. If I think my opponent has air, then I want to try to induce bluffs. If I think he has a marginal hand, then I want to maybe give him a chance to improve or try to represent a bluff myself. But really, every single decision that you make, which it sounds obvious when you say it, like every decision you make is a better decision if you have an idea of what cards your opponent has. And that's really what people are talking about when they talk about playing the situation or playing the opponent rather than just looking at your own cards and saying, well, I bet because I had top pair or, you know, I, I bluffed because my flush missed. Like actually having a clear idea of what your opponent has, that should inform every single play that you make, not just the really, not just the big decisions. And one of my pet peeves is when I see people talk about standard plays as though it's like there's, there's like nothing to discuss because they had top pair. So of course they bet. <laughs> right. Right. Andrew, I have a, a couple of questions. One related to, to the coaching conversation. And I, and I'm kind of curious on your reaction to people who are super critical of professional poker players or, or good poker players doing coaching or making videos for a trading site. You, know, you, you see people posting forums, all oh, these guys are just making the fish good, they're killing poker. Uh, what's your take on that as somebody who's done videos and coaching? I think that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, the internet exists. <laughs> you can't just like, yeah. keep information <laughs> quiet. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's just, like someone's, someone's going to do it. Um, the information is going to get out there one way yeah. or another. Uh, I don't think people are under any obligation. Like, I don't see why I have an obligation to other poker players who already know this stuff that's bigger than my obligation to people who don't know this stuff but would like right. to. Uh, <laughs> right. Great point. Yeah, like I, I just think that's a stupid argument, frankly. <laughs> you just yeah. can't control it. I mean, there's nothing you could do. You, might, you can't stop it by wishing it gone. So you right. just have to ride the wave. Yeah, drives me insane. My other question, and I don't know if this is a badge of honor for you or just a mark of incredible frustration, but you've made a bunch of incredible runs in the World Series main event. It's kind of one of the things that's, that you're sort of known for. I forget the number, but something like six out of seven or something ridiculous? I've, I've cashed, I think, five times in eight years, um, wow. but three of those were top 100 finishes. Uh, which certainly is is a badge of honor. I mean, something that I'm I'm obviously very proud of, and it has 
been very good for my bankrolls. Yeah. And my, and my, my question related to that is, what, what, you know, what is it about your style that you think lends so well to doing to going deep in that event or is it that your style is just good at going deep in every event? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I won't say, I, I, so I, I will answer the question, but I feel like it has to be prefaced with a huge, um, you know, it's, it's tournament poker and, and there's a ton of variants and I think it's pretty dangerous to say like, Oh, this guy, you know, had, had a, a string of good caches. He must be doing something right. Right. Like, right. That, that just, you know, logically the, the, the former does not necessarily entail the latter. But, you know, it, it is, I mean, I do think I'm better than a lot of people who play that tournament. Um, I do think there are certain things I do that maybe not even a lot of other professionals do that are important. Um, I think, like, valuing... It, 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 this is, has kind of flipped in recent years, but for a while it was like talking about survival at all was something that like serious tournament players would look down on. If you were like, well, I'm, I'm concerned about my tournament life, that was like a fishy thing to say. Right. I, I think people have come around a little bit on that now because it is, I mean, it's something that a lot of people overvalue. And I do see that a lot on the TPE forums where people are excessively concerned about their tournament life, but it is a real thing. I mean, survival in a tournament does actually matter, especially when it's the, the main event where your edge is potentially very large and where there aren't, you know, there's only one opportunity a year to play it. Um, I mean, there, there is something to be valued there. And I think playing a, a, at least like slightly conservative style, there's something to be said for that. Uh, but I mean, and every single one of those tournaments, obviously, there were cases where you change change one river card or, or any one of several river cards, and I'm out without caching. So right. I mean, it really it's not hard to envision alternative universes where I'm over eight. Well, actually, I wouldn't be over eight because I probably wouldn't have played the second one after <laughs> after whipping the first one. But um, I mean, it's it's perfectly plausible that I wouldn't have cashed in any one of those tournaments. It's not like something that was just like faded to happen. I mean, I feel silly like saying that on tournament podcasts because I think people realize that, but um, I, I'm just wary of any, any attempt to like explain it just based on something about how I play. Yeah, that makes sense. And my, my last question, and it's sort of off topic, but since you come from a debate background and we won't get into the debate tonight, but did you watch the debate last night and who won? <laughs> uh, no. And uh, the guy who was defending evolution. <laughs> I agree. End of that question. <laughs> cool. Did you have any other questions, Diego? Before we jump into a little bit of strategy talk. Yeah, I guess la- last thing is so. So what? You know, what about post Black Friday? What What are you doing now? Um, you obviously didn't move to Canada or Costa Rica. Well, or I did for a little while. You did um, right? Okay, right. Yeah, right. I mean, so I'd actually. This is like a big thing. I, I don't want to like go too deep into it, but it is a big thing that we didn't really. Uh, address at all, which is that from the time when I hired someone else to take over the the Boston Debate League, um, I stayed in Boston for a year past that point. It was like from 2008 to 2009. I was in Boston kind of helping with the transition, but I wasn't, I was no longer the director of the league. In September of 2009, my girlfriend and I like left our apartment in Boston and we didn't have a permanent residence for about two years after that. Uh, oh, wow. We were just like traveling around the country and, and playing online poker. I was playing online poker. Um, That's right. And so, like, March of 2011, 
we were like, maybe we should look into getting a little more settled, you know, and, uh, and so we hadn't actually rented a place. We were renting a place month to month in Boston, but we were like looking for um, something that we might rent longer term. And then, you know, again, you know, it happened shortly after that, like <laughs> life ended up getting turned upside down even, even more so than ever. Um, so I actually went, I went first to Montreal. This was because I was living in Boston at that time. So just like a couple of days after Black Friday, I was thinking, you know, maybe having a Canadian bank account will help me get money off of the sites. Because this is like, so like money hasn't even come back from PokerStars yet. So like I drove to Montreal um, and opened up the Canadian bank account. And then I was like, wow, I was in Montreal. The news that the money from PokerStars was coming back came out. But then you start to worry, like, wait a minute, why hasn't Fulltilt done the same thing? And why did Fulltilt give some, like, fishy answer when... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my my girlfriend didn't really like Montreal. I I really like Montreal. Um, She enjoyed visiting there, but I think, like, not speaking French was um, more of an impediment than she thought it was going to be. For a variety of reasons, we decided not to settle in Montreal. Um, So we ended up going for a couple months to a place called Canmore, which is uh, near Banff National Park, kind of like due north of Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, just an absolutely beautiful place, like one of the most beautiful places I've been. Um, so we spent a summer there, which was, um, yeah, I don't want to repeat myself, but just re- an extraordinary place to spend a summer. It's kind of like a, a small resort town in the Canadian Rockies. Um, so there was like pretty cool stuff to do. Like I would play the W Coop, and then if I finished early, you drive 10 minutes and go for a like breathtaking hike. Um, so that was, that was a really cool place to be. And then um, we spent the last hit, like that was like the, the summer of 2011. And then we spent three months in Vancouver. And then uh, I don't know, I just kind of got sick of needing to leave the country so much. So um, more recently, I've just gone to um, I've gone to Montreal to play the W Coupe for 2012 and 2013. I played the Scoop from Amsterdam one year. Um, so I've traveled like for for specific tournaments, but uh, I've, I've not really been leaving the country nearly as much to play online poker. It just, I don't know, the games weren't as good. It was a pretty big hassle, and uh, I started to enjoy live poker more. I, I live in Pittsburgh now, and there's a there's a casino here. It's the first time I've ever really been to um, the, the same casino on a regular basis and like gotten to know the other players there, and uh, live poker is more interesting when you know the people you're playing against, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Man, the yeah. idea of settling like in the mount, like you know, in a small resort town, like in the mountains or whatever, playing poker seems so much better than going to like I don't know, name you know, name any other big city, I guess, Toronto or Vancouver or something. That just sounds like the best life ever. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to leave. Yeah, I, I, well, the the winter in that town would have been brutal. I think yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that was the impetus for But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a bit of a life fish move to. So, like you have the opportunity to live basically anywhere in the world, and you're like, I choose Toronto. <laughs> right. <laughs> no offense to the Torontoans out there. Or even more so, like I choose some basically retirement community for American seniors in Mexico, which right. is where a fair number of people ended up. And, and like, <laughs> yeah. Are complaining that they're bored there. <laughs> Especially, I mean, if you're going to make that big of a move, like. Go big. Yeah. <laughs> or go cool, at least. Yeah. I, I have cool. one last question before we go into some hands. Um, what was it like? So uh, for those of you who don't know Andrew's tournament resume, aside from the, the main events, your biggest score was an F-Tops win, right? Was it the, um, what was it, the, the two-day? The, yeah, the two-day $2,000 tournament. Yeah. So what was that? I mean, what was that like, being, you know, that final table, um, 
I watched the final table as it was happening, and you seem to be ICM effing everyone <laughs> at the table. Can, can you walk us through like that that final table real quickly, and just kind of what you know what what the situations were that you were? It seems like you were putting people in uncomfortable situations. You recognized the you know the gravity of the situation, um, and with the chip position you had, you seemed to take advantage of it. What was that like? Honestly, I don't remember a whole lot about it. I mean, it's been. Like three years, four years. Yeah, over, over three years. It was like 2010. Yeah. Um, right. I think it was like March of 2010 or something, so almost four years um, since, since that turn. I don't remember a lot of the specifics. The one thing I do remember from three-handed was that um, I was – when we were down to three-handed, it was myself, um, Benny Spindler, who's still a, a, has actually become an even better known person in poker since then. He's a very, very good and very, very tough, uh, very aggressive player. So myself, Benny Spindler, and a third guy who – was not Betty Spindler, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and therefore the, the less difficult of my opponents, um, and, and not Betty Spindler by a wide margin. So um, I really put a lot of emphasis on getting heads up with that other guy and not making it too easy for Benny to win small pots. Um, so I was like never folding my big blind. And I could, thankfully I had a media position on him, which is extraordinarily helpful. But I was like yeah. never folding my big blind and also never fall into his C-bets. Um, basically, I was like, if you want to take a pot from me, you're going to have to, it, it's going to be a ton of risk on your part to do that. Because I also, like, I know he's looking at it the same way. Yeah. Like he's think, he would much rather be heads up with that guy than with me. So he, he would like, like, it's a really huge coup for him if he can steal my big blind or if he can raise my big blind and then C-bet and with pretty minimal risk to himself, just, like, transfer a decent number of chips from, my stack to his. That's a pretty great thing for him. So I wanted to make it, and, and then like the, the bigger the bets that he has to make get, then the more risk averse he has to be because he also wants to avoid losing a huge pot to me. So if I can put him in a position where like the best way that he can exploit me is to have to like double or triple barrel bluff me. Uh, now, he's a, an extremely good player who's actually capable of those things. So this would have been an even more successful strategy against some other people who wouldn't have quite that same tool set. But no matter how good he is, it, there's just like a mathematical limit to how much he wants to try to get away with because, yeah. you know, of course, I'm going to have real hands also. and I'm going to have some ability to guess like what his bluffing frequency will be. And I like, you know, I was also not raising monster hands on the flop. So basically, this is like I have an extremely wide range for calling him pre-flop and for calling his flop bet. And I'm we'd be following a lot of it to a turn barrel, but you know, not all of it by any means. So it just puts him, I think in a really difficult, it makes it very difficult for him to win substantial pots off of me. And then, you know, I think I was also trying to do what I could, although my options are more limited to keep him from stealing the other guy's blind too much. But that's a situation where he has a button and I'm in the small blind. So my options are kind of limited there, but I definitely like three bet him when I had the opportunity. I don't think I was ever flatting out of the small blind. I wanted to make it difficult for him to, to get chips generally. And uh, some combination of that, and uh, I think he did end up losing a flip to that other guy eventually, which was probably worth, I don't know, $80,000. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but like once we got heads up, I mean, it was, this is going to sound really cocky, but it really felt like a foregone conclusion once we were heads up. That I just don't think this guy who had generally not been playing that well, but he probably had like no heads up experience ever. So um, as someone who like played a fair bit of heads up cash, it was, and and we were reasonably deep, it would have taken a lot for me to lose that match, I think. Yet it's yeah. a two thousand dollar buy-in. 
<laughs> and you're finding people at the final three that with that skill set, that, that skill level, it's amazing. That this is really a big thing for tournament players, though, to to learn how to play heads up. Yeah. I mean, I've Agreed. worked with a ton of people, and I've seen it on the TPE forums, and people are like, oh, I'm not really much at heads up. As though that's something you can just, like, accept, like, oh, I'm just not that good at that. I mean, the, the equity difference between first and second place in a tournament is huge, and once you get there, it's too late. Like you can't, you can't just teach yourself heads up while you're at the final table of a tournament. So you really need to know how to do it before you get down to the final two. And it doesn't seem like that big of a deal because it doesn't come up that often. You spend the vast majority of the tournament playing nine-handed. But you know the difference between winning 60% of the time you get heads up and winning 30% of the time you get heads yeah. up, which even 30. Well, actually, thirty is a reasonable number. But like, you know, if you can double your chances of winning when you get heads up, that makes a, a tremendous difference in your um, ROI in a tournament. Bigger, I would think, than like getting slightly better at restealing or, or slightly better at defending your big blind or something. That, that's a great point. And one of the things I've noticed about my own game since Black Friday and playing on the U.S. sites, which have much smaller player pools, is that I do get to play, you know I do make it heads up more often or three-handed or four-handed, and that part of my game has gotten a lot better just because I've been able to practice it a lot more. And I'm, you know, just giving me more confidence in the bigger fields when I get to that point. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with, with that sentiment. It does, yeah. it, you, can't, you can't simulate it. It's, it's a completely different game. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of simulating, like, what is the best way to get better at heads up? Like, do you play heads up sit-and-goes? Do you play heads up cash? Just try to get heads up a lot and get, get better at it <laughs> just, as a result? Just win a lot. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I know you're joking, but like really not that second point, because again, I'll emphasize like once your head's up, like you can't afford to use that as your practice. Like right. that, that, that's game time. Like you have to already be good at it before you get to that point in a tournament. Um, and obviously you can't actually count on, on getting there that often. So yeah, it has to be, it has to be before that. Um, I think both heads up sit and goes and heads up cash are good options. I think that although the sit and go might seem like it more closely simulates the, the final table experience and there are certain things like push fold ranges or, you know, reach dealing ranges or, you know, shoving over a raise ranges when you're there that you're going to learn better in sit and goes. I do think overall the cash game is just better practice. Like the, um, it's not like the, the things that you need to do well to win at 100 big blind heads up poker apply perfectly well to 40 and 30 big blind poker. The the actual mechanics of them are different, but the, the skill set is the same and the reverse does not apply. So even, even if you know your 15 big blind shoving ranges and calling ranges cold, if you get to a tournament and you're 40 big blinds deep, um, that there, there's a lot of poker there that you don't know how to handle. Right. And you, and because most tournament players don't have that skill set, you can create such a big edge if you are good at it. It's just such a huge edge you can create for yourself. There's not a lot of edges to be had. Yeah, and I think that's potentially one of the big advantages that you know, maybe a Vanessa Stelps or some of these other people, you know, people will wonder, how is it, like, what's the difference between a Vanessa Stelps versus, I don't want to use a name, but like someone else who's generally a very good tournament player but doesn't have, and like has good results, but not Vanessa Self's results. And I think there's, you know, it's quite possible that one of the biggest differences is her just being better at shorthanded and heads up play. And right. so like they make the same number of final tables or the same number of final table bubbles, but then, you know, she really pulls out and, and her extra edge, which is tremendous because of how important those situations are. Um, but the, the, the reason why she wins and they get 12th where they get third or second even um, is that, She's just better at playing those short-headed situations, and I think you can probably replace Vanessa Selfs with Mike McDonald or a number of other people you would think of as 
you know, just people with, with truly extraordinary results. I think a lot of it comes from just being good closers. Great. Right. Great thing. That makes sense. Cool. Well, we've uh, we babbled on long enough, I guess. Time to get into the serious, serious discussion of tournament poker strategy. Oh my God, more serious? It's gonna <laughs> it's gonna blow <laughs> my head up. <laughs> uh, so we got um, we have a couple of hands tonight, actually. Uh, first one was actually emailed in by a user and and who started off by saying that he's a listener of the podcast and wanted to know. Uh, our thoughts. Probably, he probably didn't want our thoughts on the hand, but probably wanted whoever the pro was going to be on the podcast, <laughs> their thoughts on the hand. And uh, and they're lucky because it's you, so we thought this would be a good one to go through uh, to start things off. Do you want to you go through this first hand, Diego? Sure. So is this going to be weird for you, Andrew, not reading the mailbag? Don't you usually read the mailbag, right? It, it's nice not having this kind of responsibility. <laughs> um, I actually am recording this call out of habit, but it was nice not having, not having to stress over uh, whether I clicked the record button or not. <laughs> Derek, you did press record, right? I oh no! Don't worry, I, guys. I got yes. you. I got you. <laughs> I wish every podcast guest was as reliable as you. <laughs> Meaning, show up. Um. <laughs> oh, all right. So, from the mailbag, uh, this guy's good timing. He mailed us this morning, I think, uh, or yesterday. Yeah, so. yeah. So good. Good time. Oh, uh, so, you guys turn around your emails quick. <laughs> if, if you get read on the Thinking Poker podcast within three months of writing to us, that's a good, a good turnaround. <laughs> yeah, it was sitting actually in the the shared TPE uh, support mailbox, and uh, it was we hadn't cleared it out yet, so it was right in our you know we hadn't filed it for future, so it was right there. Um, okay, so this is let's see what he says here. Um, okay, local tournament, a hundred sixty dollar buy in with forty dollars per player bounties uh, and reentries. I started with 8,000 in chips and have not shown any aggression. I'm sorry, have not shown any hands. Table is generally cautious at folding to aggression. I have no read on the villain except he's in his late 20s, early 30s with sunglasses, headphones, and a baseball hat. I am 40s professional. I'm not sure if it means he's a 40s poker professional or a professional person. Yeah, I don't know. I am 40s professional, use a rock for a chip protector, have folded some buttons, but have won pots with re-raises from position. So probably nothing distinguishing in either one of their play um, that would raise any ire, I think, at that point. Um, Okay, level three, ten-handed. Well, I I think we can assume some things that the villain is probably assuming about the hero just based on his appearance. Okay. Um, yeah, very good point. Just, I mean, being in his 40s and using a rock for a chip protector um, right. are both probably... I mean, whether or not this guy actually means that he's a professional poker player, um, I think there's a good chance that the villain is assuming that um, that our correspondent is not a professional poker player, is prob- probably a little on the nitty side, not particularly sophisticated in terms of his analysis of poker situations. And you know, to be clear, I'm not saying that's an actual description of our correspondent, but... Um, I think it's important to be aware of what you look like and what kind of assumptions people make about you so that you can use them against those people. So, I, you know, if, if I were him and I, I wish I looked like he did, um, sometimes I make active efforts to look like he did. Uh, I think there are opportunities to surprise players like this with um, bluffs or hero calls that they're not necessarily expecting. So did you take his description of the villain to be more of like a, a young grinder? He said late, 30, late 20s, early 30s with sunglasses, headphones, and a baseball hat. Did you take that to be... I mean, it could be young grinder. It's only a $160 tournament, so it could also right. be like young wannabe. Um, yeah. 
but I think both of those people are going to tend to look at this guy in the same way, at, at okay. our, our hero in the same way. Right, yeah. Fair enough. It, it's, it's good that the, the, the guy who wrote in uh, included that description of himself because it tells me that he's probably aware yeah. of his image yeah. and, and is you know, conscious of what the problem, like you said, what that means to the villain. Right. So um, props to, to our, yeah. to our uh, listener for, for actually realizing that. Yeah. What do you take from him saying, I folded some buttons but have one pots but re-raises it from position? Like, to me, what I said after reading that was probably not too much to take from that just because I don't think people would, you know, okay, he's folded some buttons like, and won some pots from re-raises. I don't think people really noticed that. I mean, that doesn't seem to be too much of a, whoa, that guy folded some buttons, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, not, <laughs> not when it's some. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm assuming he would have said it if they'd been like really significant. So yeah, yeah I, I think those things probably aren't mattering terribly much, especially like yeah. I'm not assuming the villain is hand, even if he's a professional. He's probably not the most sophisticated professional in the world, just based on like the the right. stakes of this tournament. Um, there's there's a pretty decent chance he's not like a a super attentive player. So yeah, I, I would I would think he's probably has not. Um, notice too much one way or the other about heroes button tendencies yep okay okay so on to the hand level three ten-handed blinds are 75 150 with antis of 25 so first off that's that's an interesting anti size right 25 at 75 150 seems yeah it's a big anti it's a big anti right um but they're still pretty deep stack. He says, uh, I'm in middle position with a stack of 11.5K, and Villain is under the gun with 9.5K. 9. Um, what do you make, like, how, do you, how does this affect your play when you get antis this early, and, and, you know, it's still, you're still super deep now, you have antis in play. What does that do for you? Does it change your play much, or, or, or just, uh, I mean, obviously that's changed your play a little bit. Because it's the pots well, it should change your play a lot, really. Yeah. I mean, you're increasing the size of the pot. You're basically like doubling Sorry. the size of the pot. So yeah. you know, if if you were to double the stakes, it would. Well, it's actually not comparable because you'd have to raise a large amount as well. But I mean, basically, you should be playing a lot more hands when yeah. there are when there are such big antis out there. Like there are a number of hands that you would fold to a raise from your big blind without antis that you should be calling with antis because you're getting a much better price. Yeah. There are a number of hands that you would open fold pre ante that you should be raising with post-ante because of, uh, again, because there's more chips out there, there's just more incentive to fight over those chips, so it, it definitely should be influencing your play. Yeah. Um, the, the stack depth, and this is a, a big thing I see a lot of people misunderstand, like having a big stack or being deep is not a reason to play fewer pots. Right. Um, it doesn't make ceiling less important, or not, right. not very much so. It makes position more important. So you should be playing fewer hands from early position the deeper you are, but you should be playing more hands on yep. the button than in late position the deeper you are. Right, that makes perfect sense. And, and if you think about it, if the ante's a 25, 10 handed, just an ante's is 250 in the pot. Then you add the blinds, it's 225. So you're, you're actually at 475 in the pot before. Yeah, that, that's why I say that. The ante's double yeah. the size of the pot. The, yeah, it's huge. From what yeah. it would be without the ante's. Yeah, okay. Right. So, okay, so once again, uh, Heroes, middle position, stack 11.5k. Villain is under the gun with 9.5k. Uh, pre-flop, the villain limps from under the gun. Um, okay, and then I have ace of hearts, ace of diamonds. I raise to 450 uh, from middle position. The button and the big blind call, as does villain. Pot is 2125. Uh, so what are we inferring here? Um, I think it feels like the raise size is too small. To me, um, but what do you say that? 
Now, what are your thoughts? What, what makes you yeah, think sure, it's sure. Okay, so I mean, the, first of all, the, the villain limps 150. You know, so he throws 150 in the pot. Now there's 625. I raised to 450. I'm probably you're gonna. I'm gonna. I am gonna assume as are probably several other people at the table that the, the villain is gonna call that. So they're gonna have more callers, and you're gonna be playing. You know, aces. Uh, with four or five handed, um, and out of position to the later position player. So I would, I would raise it a lot, lot more, um, maybe like 600, 625, and hopefully just get the villain to call and everyone else to fold. That's my thought uh, process there. I still don't think you want other people to fold. Um, I mean, you will win the pot less often when it goes six handed to the flop, but mm-hmm. I mean, you're still better off having those people put the money into the pot than not. Uh, you're still ahead of you know, any individual one of their raises, any individual one of their ranges in your, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're just, you're making money when they call your raise. You, you, it'll be with a lower frequency, but when you do win the pot, it'll be much larger and you will win the pot more than any one of they, one of any one of them will. So, I mean, your objective here really ought to be to get as much money in the pot as you can. Like the main reason I would say to raise to more than 450 is not to discourage people from calling as much as to, just charge people more to call and in particular to charge more to the under the gun player to call. Right. Um, I mean, you might also want to think about what do you want to do with your whole range? Because there are hands that you're raising here where you want folds. Uh, when you have ace king, you right. want your opponent to fold a hand like eight, seven suited. When you have aces, um, they, I mean, they really are losing a pretty significant amount of the money that they put in pre-flop. You still have to be careful. I mean, it's possible that if you play your aces really badly post-flop, they could have, they could end up having the implied odds to make their pre-flop call correct. Um, right. I mean, correct in the sense that if they knew you had aces, like it will often be correct for them to call with eight, seven suited because you don't necessarily have aces. But um, I mean, even suited connectors are a pretty big dog to pocket aces pre-flop. So getting money in the pot from them pre-flop is is not by itself a problem. You just want to raise an amount that um, if you were raising with other hands in your range would give you some chance of making your opponents fold, which is nice. But also that when you do have aces maximizes the amount of money you can potentially get into the pot. Uh, and one thing that I really emphasize in my uh, my getting paid series, which deals with value betting, is, and, and this comes back again to reading your opponent's hands, which we talked about earlier, the importance of doing that throughout the hand, is that you want to have in mind a value target. You know, when you have aces, right. there are certain hands that you would really like your opponent to have, and those hands, I mean, the first and most obvious would be like pocket kings or pocket queens, where they have a hand that is already ready to play a big pot with you that might well re-raise you and, and right. potentially get all in with you pre-flop. That's like the best case scenario. The second best case scenario is if your opponent has the sort of hand that could become a good one pair hand after the flop. Right. Which is not 8-7 suited. You know, 8-7 suited people, even on like an 8-deuce-3 flop, most people aren't just going to go crazy and put all their money in. Um, so 8-7 suited, you do make money off of the pre-flop call, but generally money that goes in post-flop, you're not such a big favorite. I mean, that, and that's, that's why you have to be careful. That's kind of what I was alluding to, uh, why I, I don't want to play against four or five people, because uh, you know, at when you have five or six people in, you're going to run into hands like that, which, especially if they have a position on you, are going to are going to be you know, dogs when there are when a lot of money does go into the pot. I, I know it's probably hard to quantify this, but what you know, okay, take these aces middle position. Obviously, I'm a favorite against any other other hand, but when you factor position into it, but Andrew, how much does that change my equity when I get called by something, someone that has position on me? Like, I've never done an equity calculation on this, but if someone who has, you know, I don't know what what is uh, what is like eight seven to aces, I guess uh, 
probably not very good, but how much equity does just, how much? What is I it? mean, probably like four to one. Right. But, so how, how much does it add to be in, for them to be in position on me? I mean, that's entirely a function of, of stack depth, um, and it's going to be stack depth relative to the post-flop pot size rather than to the pre-flop raise. So you know, if and, and this is why I say like more callers is really not the end of the world. If Hero were to raise to you know just hypothetically eight hundred, not saying that's the right amount. If Hero were to raise to eight hundred and get called by four people. Okay, I mean, honestly, I would I would prefer that to getting all folds or to getting one call. Yep. And that might sound surprising to some people because, and yeah, you are going to win the pot less often. It's not that easy to outflop bases. Even with four people staying the flop, it's not that easy to outflop bases. Once you go to the flop, there's going to be, um, what, you've got four people putting in 800, five people putting in 800 apiece plus the pre-flop money. So there's going to be like 4,500 in the pot. <clears throat> And there's going to be less than 9K in, in this particular villain stack, probably in most people's stacks. So you're looking at a stack to pi ratio of basically two. Yeah. Um, your opponents are standing to win about 10 times their preflop investment, which if they have small pocket pairs and they play perfectly after the flop, meaning they stack you when they flop a set and they never stack off when they don't flop a set, um, or they never lose any additional money when they don't flop a set, they're about breaking even with, with, with trying to set mine with pocket pairs. Uh, anything else other than pocket pairs has a much less good chance of outflopping aces. I mean, if you have a, even a suited connector, it's going to outflop aces something like 5% of the time. So only winning 10%, uh, or sorry, only winning 10 times what you had to pay to see the flop is really not good enough if, um, if that's, right. that, that's kind of their upside. So there's not really a lot of room for them to make you fold aces. Like, there are certain flops that you can recognize as really bad and you know, you have the discipline not to put any more money in the pot with aces. So if the flop comes seven, eight, nine with three hearts or three spades, we'll say, because here doesn't have a spade. If it comes seven, eight, nine with three spades and four people saw the flop with me, um, there's a, you know, I'm probably not going to bet. I, I'm, I'm going to check and see what happens behind me. But maybe if, if there's one bet and everyone else falls, I might shove. But if it goes like bet, call, raise, then I can just fold without putting anything else into the pot. So there are certain circumstances where you can get away without, um, you know, on especially bad flops. And I think some people tend to look at this as, well, if I just win it pre-flop, I won't have to worry about getting an especially bad flop, which is true. But, I mean, you're also costing yourself the opportunity to um, to win all that money pre-flop from all those calls. Like, you know, you're, you would, it would be nice to win more than just like 700 chips when you have aces. And right. there's some risk involved in, in wanting to get that reward. Um, but where I'm ultimately going with this is that you, you really, you want to keep in mind the, um, the kinds of hands that you would like to, that you would most like to get action from. Because, um, I mean, there, there is, it's a lot better for you to get action from a hand like King-Queen offsuit than from 8-7 suited. Because you know, the 8-7 suited is going to play reasonably well against you after the flop. Whereas the King-Queen offsuit is very, very hard for King-Queen offsuit to outflop aces. Yeah. Um, what's far more likely is that king, the King-Queen will flop either a king or a queen. And then no matter how strong he sort of suspects that you are, most people don't have the discipline to just check and fold when they flopped up there. Like right. if you made the mistake of calling with King-Queen pre-flop um, or you know, playing King-Queen this way pre-flop, he's probably not doing that with the intention of just check folding when he flops a king or a queen. Yeah. So you, know, you want, and I, th I think a lot of people tend to make small raises with aces because they're like, well, I, I want to make sure I get action with them. But you know, the truth is that you don't you don't just welcome any and all action with with aces. I mean, if you let a lot of people see the flop for only 450, that is kind of a mistake because at that point they um, it's costing them very little to try to outflop you. And even with only a five percent chance of outflopping you, they can do it, and then you have a lot of tough. 
post-flop decisions. So you know you want you want to be charging your opponents a decent amount to to see the flop against you, and ideally an amount that will um, like the hands that you really want your opponent to have are hands that can stand big action. If your opponent has kings or queens, he's not folding to a big raise. If he has right. ace queen, ace jack, king queen, he's probably not folding to a sizable raise. Right. So it's it's not just like, well, I have to make it 450 or else I'm not going to get any action. If it were really that easy to make your opponents fold, you would just raise the 450 here when you had nothing and, and take the pot. And obviously it doesn't work that way. You know, like it, it's not that easy to make people fold. And so consequently, when you do actually get big hands, your first thought shouldn't be, oh my God, everyone's going to fold when I raise. Um, you know, I, I think you want to make a pretty sizable raise here. I don't think I would raise to less than 600. Most likely I would raise to 750. Um, yeah, 750 seems, seems pretty good. And I would do that with any hand that I chose to raise in the situation. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so he does get, you know, two callers behind him and then, uh, well, the button and the big blind and then the villain. Um, and the, who ends up playing more hand, more of this hand with him uh, also calls the pot is twenty one twenty five going to the flop. Um, the flop is seven of clubs, four of clubs, queen of hearts, and our villain once again has aces with the ace of heart. Villain checks, and um, the he goes I bet two thousand, so he bets two thousand into twenty one twenty five. Um, and the button and the big blind fold. So we stop there for a second. Um, he's betting basically pot size at this point, so I'm trying to figure out what he's thinking at this point. I think he's thinking that he has aces and he wants to win the pot. <laughs> 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 but he wants to kind of shut everyone down, and there is a draw out there, so I think that's probably why he's he's betting so big. Um, maybe afraid of the draw. Um, I mean, he's trying to not give the draw odds to call, I think is what he's doing there. I mean, I wouldn't bet this big. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot less than this is not yeah. going to give the draw odds to call. Right. Um, you know, this, it kind of comes back again to our preflop discussion. Like, you want to get called by a draw here. You just don't yeah. want to get called uh, by a draw that's getting the right price. Right, um, right. Right. And I mean, yeah, so like you, you wouldn't want to bet like 400 here and then get called by a draw. But um, you're too, like betting 2,000 and making a draw fold is not the best case scenario for you. Right. And the, the thing that I think a lot of people tend to um, underestimate the importance of or not realize what, what a big problem it is, is the amount of information you're giving away with your bet. I mean, I, I would say when I see really any player, but especially a player who meets Hero's physical description, um, make a bet of this size on the flop, especially into three people, there's just no chance that he's bluffing. Like he, he believes he has the best hand. Basically what he's telling me with that bet is I believe I have the best hand. Yeah. It's also a kind of vulnerable hand. I want to win now. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot to be said about that. One is that when you have the best hand, you don't want to win now. Um, yeah. Wanting to win now <laughs> is what you should want when you don't have the best hand. Yeah. Right. If, right. If not that you should do this, but I mean, if you were to have ace king in this situation, I would, if you force me to bet 2000 with either ace king or aces, I would rather do it with the ace king because there's some, or even more so if I had like eight, nine, um, where there's like a chance to make people fold hands that are better than mine. Winning immediately is really nice when you can't win otherwise. Yeah, right. Winning immediately is not nearly as nice when you have a hand that um, that is very likely to win at showdown. Even with three people saying the flop, even with there being a draw on the board, you are still very, very likely to win the pot at showdown, especially if some of those people fold to a flop bet. So, uh, And it doesn't have to be a, a pot size bet to, to make people fold 
um, you know, a hand like pocket eights or, or maybe even seven six. Um, so yeah, it's just like your, your number one objective here should not be protecting against the draw. It shouldn't be making sure you win the pot immediately. It shouldn't even be making sure you win the pot at all. It should be getting your opponents to make mistakes. And that, in this case, the mistake you would like them to make, you're never going to make someone fold a hand better than yours. You're never going to make them fold a hand that has the right odds to call you. Um, what you can make them do, and, and what you have a very good chance of making them do, is calling with a hand that does not have the right odds to call if they knew what your hand was. So you, know, you want to think about what are those hands that will give me action. You mentioned the flush draw, which is right, and the next most obvious example is a queen. Anyone who has a queen is not going to fold to one bet. Um, probably anyone who has 5-6 is not going to fold to one bet. And then depending on how loose your opponents are, you might get called by lower pairs, you might get called by gut shots, you might get called by backdoor heart draws, or some person who randomly has ace-king or ace-jack or something. Uh, I mean, they might call you with worse hands, but I, I think you really want to focus on... I mean, the queen is the best-case scenario for you. Like, anyone who has a queen plus another card is a huge dog to your hand, but is also very likely to think they have the best hand. So, Andrew, right. what is the best bet here to get a, to get value from the queen, considering all the stuff that could happen in the turn in River 2 with the cards that might come out? Like, what would you bet to get that value? If we were throwing concerns about information to the wind, where we're saying, like, we're just, we assume that our opponents are going to make their decisions 100% based on their cards, not even going to think about what our bet means, then I think the 2,000 would actually be okay in that scenario, because I do think that people aren't going right. to fold queen even to a big bet. Uh, people people just don't fold top pair, kind of with good reason. It's not easy to make a hand as good as top pair. Um, there, there's some like game theoretical reasons to be stubborn with it. But So if, if that were the only concern, betting 2,000 would, would make sense. To the extent that you're concerned about your opponent actually thinking about your hand, I mean, if I saw the flop here with king-queen, I would fold to this bet. Yeah. Now, you yeah. can ask yourself how much credit you give your opponents for being able to do something like that. But, you know, I also think there are people who might call this bet but then fold to further bets, whereas they wouldn't do that if you had made a more normal-sized bet on this flop. So you might also want to think about what would I do here? You know, what other hands could I have played this way? What would I do here if I had, say, a jack of clubs? What amount would I want to bet? Um, you know, as, as we did pre-flop, you kind of want to think about what would I do with my whole range uh, and I think that becomes less important the deeper you get into the hand. When we talk about turn and river bet sizing, I think it's less important to be concerned with balance. But pre-flop and on the flop, I think it's a bit more important because people have so many opportunities to observe your patterns. And I think a lot of – it's kind of funny because a lot of tournament players will tell me, um, oh, I don't, I don't think balance matters at all in tournaments. But at the same time, those people don't vary their pre-flop bet sizes. <laughs> and I think they're right not to, but I mean that's a balance thing. Like, yeah. you know, you're you're raising the same amount preflop because you don't want to give away information about your hand. And I think a lot of the same arguments that apply to preflop sizing apply to flop sizing. If you routinely bet more when you hit than when you miss, or vice versa, that's not a difficult pattern to pick up on. It doesn't take a genius to pick up on that. The deeper you get into the hand, the more situations become distinct from each other, so people right. have fewer opportunities to observe your behavior. You play fewer turns in rivers, so people have fewer opportunities to observe your behavior. And maybe most importantly, you start to have a more clear idea of what your opponent has, and so you can do more kind of playing his hand. At this point, you know, we're up against three people. We don't even know who the main villain is going to be yet. We don't have much idea of what their hand is. We really can't play their hand yet. We still have to play our own range. And then the deeper we get, the, the, the further we get into the hand, the more we can start to think about just manipulating him rather than um, keeping our own range balanced. So, so 
is there any validity to the line of thought here that if I bet, you know, this 2000 is going to kind of force him to a decision on the, if he calls here or anyone calls here, it's going to make the turn decision the, you know, sort of a, a, the critical decision if he's going to, you know, stack off on this or not, and therefore more likely to fold a queen because he gets scared for his tournament life. I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that right. But I feel yeah, like, it's like a leverage thing. I mean, you're right, exactly leverage. Right, you're kind of communicating to him that this is going to be a big pot, and uh, you know, you don't really want your opponent. The, the, the more that you can keep your opponent making standard plays rather right. than actually yes. thinking about yes. what he's doing, that's a good right. thing for you. So yeah, when you yeah, make yeah, a suspicious, yeah. when you do anything suspicious, a suspicious play either overly big or overly small, your opponents will stop and think about what it means. Versus if you bet an amount that seems normal to your opponent, they're probably just going to be like, shrug, I have top pair, I call, and not even think about what exactly. you're doing. So I, mean, I, I think you're right. You know, when you make a big bet size, your opponent might start to think, oh, geez, that's a lot of my stack. You know, Do I really want to play a big pot here with king-queen? What does this guy have? Exactly. Hey, it sure seems like he has no repair. He's 40 and he has a rock as a chip protector. Maybe he is a rock. Maybe I should think about folding my king-queen. He probably has top pair. I'm going to fold a queen face up. Like That's probably actually happened to this guy before. Right, and I want to get him thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to call him with a king-queen here. I'm not folding king-queen here. And then in yeah. the turn, I want him thinking the same thing. I'm not exactly. folding top pair. You, you, know, you don't not want him to realize the existential threat until it's too late. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. All right. Um, okay, so, so so what would you bet here? Like, my with all these people in the pot and the draw, like, the first thing I think just intu- intuitively is like 1200. What, what is your, what is your, that, that's about what I was going to say. Um, I don't think it has as much to do actually with the number of people in the pot as with the, um, I mean, it's, it's actually strikes me as a slightly small bet size. Um, if you were deeper, but the stacks are actually pretty shallow at this point. Yeah, there's 2000 in the pot and there's like nine K in, in villains stack. We don't know what all the villains have, but even so there's like less than six pot size bets in here at stack. Yeah. And the upshot of all that is that you can easily get all in by the river. If you that, want that's, to. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. More than half the pot. Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. It feels like 1200. Like I, I didn't write it down, but it feels like 1200 would get us to a pot size bet, at least in the, on the river to get it all. Yeah, I, I think it would actually probably be more like half pot bets all the way. It would be in a, like you bet twelve hundred now, you bet two thousand or so on the turn, and then you shove like four thousand on the river. That's pretty close to his whole stack. Right. Okay. Cool. Sounds right. Okay. So, all right. Well, going back to it once again, the flop is seven of clubs, four of clubs, queen of hearts. Uh, our hero has ace of hearts, ace of diamonds. Um, villain checked. Hero bets two thousand. The button and the small and the big blindfold. Um, the villain deliberates, even spreading the pot to count what is in it. He calls. Pot of pot is sixty one twenty five. What is that? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of that? <laughs> I'm just going to ask you. <laughs> whenever whenever people spread the pot or, or ask the dealer to spread the pot is usually what happens. Um, I can never decide if that's like, okay, well, he must be good because he's actually trying to figure out odds and stuff, or if I think, well, he's not good because he should know what the pot size is without having to have it spread. <laughs> but, Andrew, you might be more of an expert on that than me. Um, I really wish Nate were here because he's really the one who knows this sort of stuff. <laughs> but I'm inclined to think it's – going with my initial read that this guy is either like a, a young grinder or a wannabe, unfortunately, it doesn't – each of those things would suggest something different. I think from the young grinder, this would likely be a uh, a ploy 
where he's like pretending that he has a tough decision. And this is kind of like a, a weak mean strong sort of thing where he's like, oh, what am I going to do? I, I can't decide. I have to have you know, spread the pot for me. Help me make this terribly difficult decision. <laughs> um, so it, it could be like a, an overacting kind of thing from the young grinder type. From the wannabe type, I think it's more him like showing off. He's like, I know the pot odds are important and I'm going to you know, make a show of deliberating over the right things before I make my decision. Um, and those would indicate two very different types of hands. In, in the first case, it would indicate a monster hand that he feels compelled to make a to get fancy with and make a show of it. Um, and in the, the latter case, it would indicate uh, a draw or, or some sort of kind of marginal hand. The reason I'm inclined to think it's not the well it would be sort of weird if he had a draw went to the effort of counting out the size of the pot and then decided to make a blatantly bad call yeah <laughs> like <laughs> like what was the point of counting right. the pot right. and then finding out that the bet was the size of the pot and then deciding you're going to call anyway with your draw but then again i think people do actually do that so i don't know i mean like people chase and and then just like i don't want to come up with justifications for it or or whatever um but I I do think that he's less likely to do that with a marginal hand. So come, you know, we, we talked about this hand reading thing already. I think if he has a queen, he doesn't do this, yeah. which is unfortunate because a queen has what we really wanted him to have. But right. I don't think he makes this sort of show with a queen. The pot odds, I mean, pot odds actually matter, but people tend to think about pot odds more when they're drawing. So right. I, I think that he's he, he probably either is putting on a show with a monster or is making a bad call with a draw. Um, the, in some sense, the draw is more likely because it's easier to flop a draw than it is to flop a monster. Um, just looking at this board, I think it's kind of unlikely Villain is playing like queen seven, queen four, maybe seven four suited, but even that's a little unlikely as none of the gun limper. Um, so pocket queens is, is pretty unlikely. So in, in terms of like actually flopping a set, there's only six combinations of that. I guess there, actually, there aren't actually that many combinations of club hands you could have either if we're not giving him credit for like gappers, but I guess suited aces are probably plausible hands for him yep. and, um, and some suited connectors. So it might actually be closer to 50-50 in terms of draws versus monster hands now that I, now that I think about it. If you throw 5-6 into his range, that gives him a couple more draws, but it's probably only 5-6 suited. So, um, given that, yeah, draws are a bit more likely, but this behavior, I mean, I think that some people who would make this behavior with a draw would fold after counting it out. So that maybe makes it more like 50-50, whether he has a draw or a monster. Would you shove or fold here if you had a draw in his case? Um, ace, maybe, with an ace, an ace high draw. Yeah, I mean, with any other draw, like if it's not five, six of clubs or the ace high right. draw, then it's yeah, a fold because yeah. he has aces. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, with the with the ace high draw, because the thing is, like, villain would probably do the same thing with kings. Maybe not with king queen though. Uh, villain here meaning meaning hero. Like, I'm putting myself in the actual villain shiz. Um, I actually think if I had the wherewithal to think through it this far, it's actually pretty likely that your ace isn't live because um, it's not live against ace queen. It's not live against aces. So. Um, yeah, folding the nut club draw could actually be correct here, which is kind of weird. Um, five, six of clubs, I would call with, um, just because I don't think you have any fold equity at all. And this is actually something I talk about in my new bluffing series. But um, even with these hands, like a five, six of clubs, that's like the 
the best possible bluffing hand. Right. Um, I still think that you want a little bit of fault equity to right. shove it. Like, there's no sense in shoving here if you know for sure here villain is going to call because right. there is some chance that you could represent something later. Like maybe I call now and then the board pairs on the turn and I bet at that point and like you you really only need like some very small shred of fault equity to to make a bet correct or I mean maybe you miss on the turn and. and villain bets again and you're able to make a correct fold that's actually a more important thing to talk about right. i think a lot of people um again they'll like well i know i can make a plus av shove on the flop so why would i wait until the turn is a blank and then fold um the thing is you want to look at it as an opportunity to see the turn for cheaper like the turn is going to be what the turn is going to be and the question is whether your stack's going to be in the pot before you see the turn or not um, and so giving yourself the opportunity to fold on a blank turn, that's, that's an opportunity. That's not a, it's not a bad thing. So I mean, I think some people want to put the money in here so that they don't have to fold on a bad turn, but right. I would rather look at it as I get to fold on a bad turn. I get to find out that the turn is going to be a blank before I put the rest of my stack in the pot. And therefore I'm able to make a good fold that if I got all in on the flop and then saw that turn card, I would have wished I had the opportunity to pull 7,000 chips back out of the pot and muck my right. hand. Right. And do we think with his, with, you know, with our, our hero, who's now the villain, his bet of 2,000, we, we have enough to fold on the turn? You know, it's, it's, there's enough left in our stack to fold? Sure. I mean, if, if, you, if yeah. let's say that we knew for sure here at Aces, right, we're, we're he just... We're that confident. We know for sure yeah. he has aces. So you know, we call now. There's 6,000 in the pot. There's 7,500 left in villain stack. Um, I mean, your ch- if, if the turn is a blank, let alone like the turn being an ace or some other like truly you know a board pairing card, maybe it reduces your equity a bit. But um, even if it, the, the turn is like a complete blank, uh, the jack of diamonds, you you now have your 15 outs, which may be 14 outs if uh, Hero has the ace of clubs. So you have either 14 or 15 outs going into the river. That's about a 30% chance of, of hitting. So you can't even call a pot size bet on the river. Right. Maybe you can if you assume a little bit of implied odds. When you when you get there, villain might pay off a bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not in a position to call a, a huge bet on the turn. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, so... So fla- okay, so we, we we left here now. The pot is sixty one twenty five. Like I said, he bets two. The hero bets two k. Villain calls. Um, the turn is the king of spades. So it's the, the board is seven of clubs, four of clubs, queen of hearts, king of spades. Villain checks again, and here the the, the hero bets three k. Is there is there any reason to to bet now? Should, should, should you check behind? I know you, you know, you're, you're always trying to go for value. Now the king, the, the queen king, although I'm trying to place the value, the, 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 the amount of times he has the queen after that whole deliberating and spreading the pot <laughs> uh, ruse. Um, but would, do you bet here for value, Andrew, or do you, do you keep this, the pot small now and, and, and try to go, get the showdown cheaper? Well, I'm not that worried about the king. I think the the bigger question is how confident I am. I mean, I, I kind of concluded after talking through the flop that it was like 50-50 that villain had either a, a draw or a monster hand. Right. So, you know, we can basically assume we're we're drawing practically dead against the monster hands. You know, flop to set, we have uh, right. two outs against that hand. So we have like 4% equity against the flop set. Um, so putting money into the pot against the flop set is really, really bad. Right. And putting money into the betting against a draw is not worth anywhere near 100% of 
the size of the bet. Um, right. If you know, if, if we're called, if it's by six five suited, then we get something like seventy percent of that bet. Um, if it's a, a worse draw than that, then we're going to get more like eighty percent of the bet. But in any event, um, you know, it, it, considering that when we're behind, we're dead, and when we're ahead, we're only like a seventy or eighty percent favorite. Um, I I think if 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 you're really confident in that read on on the flop that he has one of those two hands, then I think you would want to check. And it yeah. kind of sucks. I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying like, well, a, how are you so confident? Which you know maybe you're not. If if you think he could still have queens in his range, that's a different story. But if 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 you are comfortable reading a lot into his flop behavior, um, then I I think that you do want to check behind because putting money into the pot against his range is that's a, it's a bad thing for you. You know you just kind of have to accept the. Yeah. That, that giving free cards to draws is the the price that you pay for not yeah. putting money in bad against sets. Right. So so yeah. Here's here's my thinking on it. So t- I'll summarize why why I check behind and tell me any of these lines are wrong. So first of all, I think you know he's unlike like as far as him having a queen to pay off you know my bet because he certainly probably will call if he has a queen here, um, but he's not gonna have ace queen most many times because I have two aces and king queen you know now is ahead of me and you know queen jack queen 10 maybe right so yeah maybe I'll get some value from those guys but even those guys are getting afraid now and maybe not might, might not call my bet monsters obviously are calling me and I'm behind them so why do I want to put more in there and draws are probably going to fold here um, so if I was to bet I'd bet uh, you know enough to make the draw unprofitable, but most of those draws are just going to fold anyway. So, well, making you know, draws fold is worth something, but um, right, yeah, I, I think I think that the rest of those are yeah, it, it, and you're right. It's not nearly as much as like the, the upside of that is not nearly as good as the as the downside of betting into a set is bad. Right, and if a draw comes in and he makes a small bet and I call, it's not you know it's not the end of the world. Um, well, and, I mean, why would we'll, we'll talk about that on the river? Okay, yeah, we'll talk about it on the river. Good. But um, he might also, you know, he might take a stab at it on the on the river if if something doesn't come in, right? If he has a draw and it doesn't come in, and, and I you know I let him get to the river for free, and a draw doesn't come in, he might bluff it in, and I can call and, right. and get chips there. And at um, that point, you have a hundred percent against a missed draw, like exactly. Yeah, that, then like you, you're better off putting money in the pot against a range that's like fifty-fifty monsters or missed draws because at least right. you know you you either win or lose hundred percent of the time versus you know losing hundred percent but only winning eighty percent. Right, right. So so I feel like it, you know it's better to to just check behind here. Okay, so I, I'm glad to hear you agree. <laughs> um, but we'll get to the point on the um, on on if he bets if a, if a draw comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so villain checks. I bet three k. Villain deliberates again and he calls. So, I, I'm pretty scared now. <laughs> um, what are you thinking here, Andrew, with this I mean, call? So much of this depends on, like, it's, it's such a stupid spot for Villain to slow play again here. Yeah. Um, with only having 4,000 left in his stack, like, it's, I mean, I think Hero is not very likely to fold aces if, if yeah. Villain shows for 4,000 more. Like, a, a player who bets 3,000 on the turn with 4,000 behind is not folding. Right. Right. Any hand that would be capable of calling a river shove, and I, I want to jump ahead a bit and just say what, what villain ends up doing is is shoving the river. And we don't even have to talk about what the river card was, but just you know, if, if we assume that you know, in the scenario where villain is slow playing, it's a pretty dumb line for him to like yeah. call now and then shove four thousand on the river. Like there are very few river cards that are going to cause hero to call a bet that he wouldn't call on the yeah. river, uh, that he wouldn't like. Uh, 
with, with a hand that wouldn't just call a shove now. Um, and there's like the, there's the real risk that the river ends up being like a club or something scary. And, and, here, and he folds. And yeah, he folds and he and he fold or something. Right. So against a player yeah. I respect um, who really wouldn't have taken this line to begin with, but I mean I think that just calling here with only four thousand behind is actually a pretty good indicator that he doesn't have a monster because if he had a monster, like I would think he would just put it in now and expect to get paid off. But you know you do see people who just you know, excessively slow play and, and slow yeah. play in, in bad spots, and this could easily be that going on. Um, well, the hundred sixty dollar buy-in makes me feel like that the frequency of that is much higher than yeah. and then in a, in a you know different size tournament. Exactly. Yep. Right. So yeah. I, I wouldn't rule it out entirely, but I, I would discount slightly the possibility that he's um, that he's slow playing, which is nice. Yeah, I don't know. My, I, I feel like these guys in 160s are slow playing here a lot. <laughs> I just feel like <laughs> even if it's a lot, like reducing it from 100 percent to 80 percent is nice. Like thinking that right. there's there's at least a 20 percent chance he would have stuck it in here. Right, right, right. Okay, so so okay. Well, the river is the four of hearts. I mean, it puts another four out there. But how many fours do we think he really has? Um, yeah, this, I mean, it for discounts him to call it the bare four. I just I yeah. don't see that. I don't see that, and and it discounts. Um, a set of fours, right? I mean, that, that you know, adding that extra four there. Um, and the villain immediately fires all in, um, about 4K. Like, as much as you said, I don't think a, you don't think that a, a monster slow, slow plays here. I mean, I can't imagine that he thinks now he, you know, he can, his bluff, you know, he could bluff a misdraw for 4K into this pot, which is, I don't know. He didn't put the, stat, the size of the pot, but I think it's about 12K uh, at this point. 12.1K. 12, 12, yeah, 12. So when he bets 4K into a 12K pot, I can't imagine a misdraw doing that when, to the same point you made, Andrew, that you know you're, you probably would call that with most of your hands. Like, what, what do you think of that? Do you, I mean, that he... Whatever he has, he played it badly. Like there, there's, there's no hand that the yeah. villain could turn over where I would say, oh, yeah, that was really well played. Um, so, I mean, either he made a bad slow play or he's making a bad bluff now. Uh, I don't I don't have a ton of experience in, in these 160s. I mean, it sounds like you think people do make bad slow plays a lot. I don't know if you think people also make bad desperation bluffs. Um, but, I mean, the way I would look at it is, you're getting four to one on the call. And although it's kind of hard to construct a scenario where he's bluffing, I also think it's a little difficult to construct a scenario where he has um, a monster hand. Uh, I think there's good arguments against both of those. Uh, I still don't think you're going to see one pair. Like I, I, I do think he has either a monster or a bluff, right. um, but you know, he only has to be bluffing about 20% of the time. I do think there are some good reasons why he shouldn't have a monster here. As you say, the four discounts the monsters a bit. There are draws that missed. I think you would need a pretty good read to, to fold. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't want to fold just based on the information that we've seen here. And then you know, the one thing we didn't discuss that's a small consideration, there is a $40 bounty if, yeah. if you call and are correct, and that adds a little bit of equity as well. And there are yeah, and there point. are reentries in this too, so a lot of people play a little looser there in, the, in this spot because of that. Yeah, he, um, he might be a little less deterred from bluffing than he than he would otherwise be. Right. Um, it, it, I was actually thinking when I when I saw that the river was a four, I was kind of thinking to myself, it's like it's pretty much the best card for us. Yes. I, I thought because yeah, I, I think it, I think it's like really, you said, it's it's different, different ace. It, it is the best card. Yeah. Oh yeah, because it, it discounts the set of fours. It makes king queen no good anymore. Um, 
so now we're really only worried about a set oh, of Oh, that's right. That You're right. I forgot. The, I didn't, you know, I didn't put it. That's right. It gives us two pair now to his. If he has, if he got a weirdly played king queen here, that we're better than that now, right? All right. Yeah. So I, yeah, I can't imagine a universe yeah. in which I'm folding. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think this is a, a pretty clear call without a good read. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in, in Diego the point that you started to make on the turn, which is you said you know let's say that here that the river is the um, the four of clubs instead of the right. four of hearts. You um, were saying four, cl- four of clubs is on the flop already, so okay. So let's look at the eight of clubs then. Eight of clubs, right? Yep. Okay. Um, so you were. It sounded like you were thinking about calling a small bet on the river. I was. Yes. Uh, I, was. I think I would actually be more inclined to fold there, um, even even if you check behind the turn. So we were talking about a scenario where hero checks behind the turn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let, let me clarify that. If if there's four thousand left, I mean, a small bet is kind of weird. It would make me rethink the whole thing, but. If, if we're the pot is the pot would be sixty one twenty five and we, you know the turn went check the 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 turn went check check I checked behind um, and the the um, club comes in right? right okay so that that's the scenario we're talking about right right so let, and let's I don't know if, if you consider it cheating or not for me to call it the eight of clubs on the river but for, let, let's start by oh, calling it the eight of clubs which yeah. which also completes the open ended straight draw. Um, Mm, I that's think different. That, that's different because it does. That, that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, yeah okay. Start with uh, that. So let, let's let's start with that scenario. Yeah. So eight of clubs on the river. Villain bets two thousand after hero checks behind the turn. Uh, I think it's a fold. With the eight of clubs, two thousand into six thousand does seem valuey. Okay. I- that so much stuff that there was yeah that came in that so much stuff just came in that I'm, I'm well and if we if we were saying we were sort of waiting in fifty fifty between monsters and draws every draw got there right, right. yeah or yeah. or he had a monster in, in in the first place and it doesn't matter yeah I, I agree that's the key yep. and that's where this hand rating stuff matters where even without breaking down the possibilities and, and I know I kind of did I did a slightly more sophisticated hand reading where I talked about specific combinations but even if you just say to yourself villain has either a, a monster or air. Um, once you get to the river, there's no more air. Like when, when yeah. that when it's that river card, right. there is no air for a villain to have, yeah. which yeah. you know, you don't beat anything at that point. Um, there's like yeah, you can beat ace queen, but he wouldn't play ace queen this way. Like he wouldn't play marginal hands yeah. this way unless you think that he would. I mean, if if you don't no. ascribe as much importance as I did to the spreading out the pot thing, um, but I mean other than that. Like and then that's why Henry matters. Like you can save yourself those two thousand chips on the river rather than just say. And I'm not saying this is your thought process, but I think a lot of people think this way. Which is like I checked the turn, so I induced a bluff or I underrepresented my hand. Therefore, I have to call the river. Um, right. You know, mm-hmm. it, that doesn't matter if villain doesn't have hands that could bluff in his range. Or underrepresenting really only matters if it's going to lead villain to overvalue a marginal hand. And here, there's no marginal hand for him to do that with. So you know, I still think you can fold on that eight of clubs river. And make the river nine of clubs so that five, six myths, it's a little more complicated because now there's four combinations of bluffs he can have. Um, so, I mean, you'd have to count the number of monsters, but I still wouldn't be surprised if it's a fold on a nine of clubs river getting four to one. Um, I mean, so if he has four value hands, he would have to have, or sorry, if he has four bluffing hands, we'd only have to give him 16 value hands to turn it into a fold. Um, we're already counting six combinations of sets. So, Right. You just have to have ten combinations of flushes. Yeah, maybe it would be a call in that scenario. But um, I, I think the eight of clubs is a fold, and I think the nine of clubs is a fold if he bets three thousand instead of two thousand. 
Interesting. I love this handwriting yeah. stuff. I'm actually going to go back and watch it. I think I'm going to rewatch series. the series. I forgot now. how good it was. <laughs> I, I hope what this drives home to people is how powerful it is. Because I, I have a sense a lot of people are looking at this and being like, how the hell did he get to the point where we're talking about villain couldn't possibly have a queen? And that actually comes down more to his, his physical behavior than to his handwriting. But there are a lot of situations where just like the amount of money that he put in the pot or the way that it went in you know, indicates that he couldn't have a marginal hand. And, and this is also stuff that I think is, is laid out pretty, pretty well in the handwriting series. So if I, I basically that's the starting point to learn how to do this sort of thing. But you know, I, I if, if you're very surprised by some of the stuff I'm talking about on the river, that should indicate to you the power of handwriting and convince Absolutely. you that you should be trying to learn how to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Definitely check that series. Yes. Out. So let me give you the results here. Well, actually, I don't have results. Uh, he decided he does not have a four, um, right? Uh, I don't think he would play king suited king four or queen four under the gun. I doubt he would have called the flop that with ace four even of hearts, although possible. Um, I fix his range as trip sevens, trip or quad fours, all of which have me crushed. Was he acting when he called on flop or turn? I beat king-queen or any other two pair, possibly of clubs. If it was king-queen clubs, he might have raised under the gun or shoved on turn, or he has a failed flush draw. If I call and lose, I have 1,800 in chips with blinds going up in five minutes to 100, 200 with 50 antes. Decision. So he doesn't give us results, but I hope he does. He's a podcast listener. Um, I don't want to give out his email address. Do you give out email addresses, Andrew? Or no? One on the Thinking Poker podcast. No, certainly not. Okay, all right. So I won't give out your email address. <laughs> I, well, he, he said he's a listener, so I have a feeling yeah, he'll, uh, yeah. he'll listen to this. And um, if he's not a member and not posting in the forums, then he should just email us yep. back and let, let us, us know because I want to yep. know. All right, well, good discussion. We, uh, you know, sometimes we'll cover more hands, but this one was really interesting and really in depth. And we did talk a little bit of strategy in some of the other segments, so I think we can uh, we can wrap it up there. And, and Andrew, I know you're a busy guy. You probably got a podcast to record yourself, so we'll uh, we'll let you get out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for staying uh, up so late with us here. <laughs> Appreciate it. We have day jobs, so we have to do these things at night. <laughs> yeah, very much appreciated. Um, for those of you who um, are not already doing so, you should follow Andrew on Twitter at Thinking Poker. And uh, also, obviously, check out the Thinking Poker podcast, which uh, is in the iTunes store and also over at your, your blog slash website, which is thinkingpoker.net. Thinkingpoker.net. Uh, you find the blog there. And anytime there's a new podcast that's posted there as well, I also advertise the new podcasts on Twitter. And there's Very information cool. about coaching is there on thinkingpoker.net as well if you decide you're interested in that. Excellent. Well, thanks again, uh, Andrew, for joining us. Definitely appreciate it, and uh, we'll make sure that not another like two years goes by before we get you on <laughs> yeah, the show. Yeah, it was fun. I'd be happy to do it more often. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again, and uh, stick with us. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll wrap things up here on the Tournament Poker Edge podcast.
Welcome back to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. Big thanks to Mr. Andrew Brokus for stopping in. Uh, always loved his videos. It was really nice to sit and talk uh, through some strat with him. Yeah, I mean, that's like top grade class A poker strategy, man. That, that, I love talking poker with him. It always expands my mind. Yeah. yeah, and obviously you've known him a lot longer. I've only had the chance to meet him a couple of times, but uh, just from watching his videos and stuff, um, he's just so... Obviously a great poker player based on his results and whatnot, but he's just so good at communicating concepts and stuff. Yeah, he's but, very patient, uh, yeah. too. He's right. very patient. Like, I think he said that. He's very patient with explaining things that may not be immediately apparent to you because you're not, you know, you're not, you're not thinking poker 24-7, maybe as he is, you know, maybe you're not a professional. Um, I mean, I think we probably grasped the, the fundamental concepts he was talking about, but for people earlier in their careers... Um, He's great. He's great for that. I mean, he's yeah. a very, very clear speaker. I, I always enjoyed talking poker with him. He's a great guy to, to boot. So, yeah, yeah. So if you're uh, if you're a member and you haven't watched his videos, which I find yeah. hard to believe, yeah. <laughs> but if you haven't, check him out. If you're not a member, sign up. Check him out. Well worth every single penny. Um, speaking of TP, let's talk a little bit about what's going on over at TP. Yeah. So TPE University has launched. Um, we mentioned it being imminent on the last podcast than it is here and, and, and up and running and thriving. Um, so for those of you who didn't hear the last podcast, we launched a sort of course-based, um, module-based uh, lesson plan for getting uh, and using and leveraging TPE. So um, we've broken uh, you know the best of the best content into um, different functional topical areas that you can go through in order if you want. Um, they, they've built it in an ordered format, but you can also kind of jump around if something's more interesting to you. There are a couple like specific courses. Like, so basically, if you go through it, and there's a number of courses you have to take, a number of videos you have to watch, and a number of quizzes you have to pass, and you get you know, a passing grade, and you'll be you know, uh, complete with TPE University. Um, and a couple of them are mandatory. Um, some of them are electives, uh, and we cover you know all kinds of topics that we think are essential to a tournament po- poker player um, elevating their game. So from from simply getting started at TPE to um, early stages, late stages, final tables, uh, three betting, um, uh, playing in position. Um, there's tons of topics and. Uh, there's a lot of content in each one, and uh, we've already had a couple people pass and, uh, and 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 complete the course, which is awesome um, to yeah. see. I think there was someone who finished it like within like four days. <laughs> yeah, that that's dedication. That's dedication, and that guy has what it takes to become like a supernova elite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's you know, it's a lot of content you have to finish to pass these things. So, yeah. so yes, yeah, and I think it's cool. It's it's um. You know, like you said, it's not required. You can, you can consume the content in any way you like. But for people who are maybe new to the site or even people who have been around for a while, I mean, there's over 800 videos at this point. It's a lot to get through. Um, so to have sort of a structure that you can follow and, 
as just a way to consume all that information. I, I just think it's really cool, and we'll continue to build on it too as time goes. Yeah, and the number, I mean, the two main pieces of feedback we've we've gotten from our members over the years as the site has grown is I want a better way to consume the content. I don't know where to start. Um, there's a lot of stuff here, and a lot of great stuff buried because it was two years ago or a year ago. Um, so particularly the theory videos, which you know are in many many cases timeless, um, but not on the front page, uh, so they get lost. Uh, and I want a way to test you know test what I'm learning, and this does both things. And yep. we've gotten you know, a lot of a lot of great feedback so far. So uh, so that is up and live and going and. You can go there if you're a TPE member. You have full access to TPEU as part of your subscription, no no extra charge. And if you're not a TPE member but you listen to the podcast, you should go there and at least sign up for the free trial and, and, and check it out because um, yeah. we've made a lot of lot of stuff within it free. Uh, and you could just do that, try out a course or two, and see what you think, and you know, just just use it that way. You can at least get a couple of free videos out of it. We're happy to yeah. happy to have people trying it out. Okay. Yep, and let us know what you think of it. We uh, we love the feedback. Absolutely. Uh, how about on the video front? I know we got some pretty cool stuff running. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Andrew is currently running. Um, so you know, of course, uh, his his uh, his 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 podcast is great, and his videos are great, and his videos always do well. And he, as he mentioned, he's running a series on bluffing right now. Um, so a crucial component of your game. Uh, so I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, Daryl Jace uh, just finished a live sweat, and uh, and I'm really happy for it, him on this one because his first <laughs> Daryl is a brilliant guy, right? We've had him on the podcast. Uh, his videos are consistently rated high, uh, as high as anyone else's, and um, and what's funny is, you know, he he typically is one of those really in depth. I mean, he's very similar to Andrew in the sense that he's a high level thinker and. He's theoretical and analytical, and I mean, he, talk about hand reading. He did a, a series on advanced hand reading where he did one hand for you know a, a whole video on one hand. And, and when you're talking to yeah. yourself, that's a lot. That's a lot, <laughs> yeah. right? And you know, he literally went through exploring every possible company. I think Andrew talked about how you know his his he makes it you know a rubric to make it useful in hand, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, classifying hands, monsters, draws, or or marginals, and um, and 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 Daryl did the opposite approach where he he took every possible hand, you know combination of hands that this, you know the opponent could have and looked forward three hand three um, two streets down the road and to see how you know impacting his play there. So it's kind of like very a chess based. Way of thinking mm-hmm. about anything. Yeah, um, way to describe it. Yeah, so 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 Daryl, I mean, has a ton of fans for that reason. But his live his, his first live sweat, he's just a different guy on a live sweat, right? And you know, he, he didn't have a great <laughs> live sweat. Uh, All that stuff's happening in his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that he did in his theory video. Yeah. It's just, well, yeah, and it's funny too because I um, we've probably talked about you know what we like about different videos and what we look for. I loved. I loved even that series. Yeah, I did too. Because I, did too. I like a glimpse into the life of you know a frustrated MTT grinder because that's what we all are, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, and, and I think sometimes he can come off a little brash because yeah. of that and things yeah. like that. But I find it not only incredibly educational but just fun as hell to listen to. Yeah. So his first life's what didn't do great. Um, 
because of that. But his this Life Sweat has had stellar reviews, and he really, you know, he's a quick learner, and he he figured out how to do a Life Sweat well, and he's done a great he did a great Life Sweat. So that that just ended. So um, that's certainly a very popular um, series right now. And right before that, Danny N13 did a T Coop. Um, prep live sweat with a bunch of turbos. So if you're into the turbo game, um, that's going on. And uh, coming up, um, Chris Moon has had a series of shootouts uh, that we've been int- running on an interstitial basis. They're kind of like you know each table is like its own little module. So um, we've been breaking that up over time, and we're going to close that out with the last table and then the final table. Um, spoiler alert: He makes it to the last uh, shootout table, and he does that with Jamie Kerstetter. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And then a stick it to the man. Ah, uh, no. With Mr. Killing Bird. <laughs> it's going to be pain. I haven't watched every part yet. Does it get bad? Um, there's just there's some spots where my my old school internet comes out. Cringe, yeah. It's, it's cringe. Yeah. Like I think some. Well, I'm not really not so much cringeworthy. And what's well, I'm not going to spoil too much of it. But I'll say that there's definitely some old Killing Bird still. <laughs> within me Um, and and there was some a couple of pretty uh, very specific leaks that I had the um, Mark Eliotto AZNL and Devil 7 did did the stick of the man and I'm actually uh, unlike past stick of the man I'm actually on with him while he's doing it Um, and and he doesn't take it easy on me and he uh, he definitely identified some pretty like not even like a lot of leaks but just two well, really, two or three very specific things that I was doing very consistently, um, and I feel like I've plugged those things already. Well, I'd be, I'm beginning to plug those things already as a result of just that, you know that call with him. Right. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, <laughs> That's the one thing I've come to realize. We talk about this a lot. Like you, you just never stop learning in this game. Right. And, yeah, and, you don't. And, yeah. and it's so funny because if you had said to me, "Oh, you, you know, you still do these two things." that you did two years ago, sometimes, um, I would have said, no, I don't, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't have that problem anymore. Right, uh, but, but you did. It was, it was, yeah, it was scary to see, him, to see him come out. Is one of them lobby checking? No, <laughs> thankfully not. Uh, although, it's funny, I actually, I actually tend to do a little bit more of that now than I used to because I actually feel, now that I'm playing a lot of tables and stuff, there's value in making sh- you know making sure that you cash in yeah. some cases you know sounds it sounds like I'm regressing I guess to my old self but um, you know sometimes you know it, in certain situations it's important to cash the two fifteen major on yeah the, I, I think I think there yeah. I think there's definitely been a shift in thinking around the value of cashing um, yeah. not necessarily that you want to play to cash but I think I think there's definitely people you know top level thinkers have recognized that. The caching does have some value, and it does impact your decision a little bit, depending, you know, close to the bubble. Um, yeah. Not major way, but it does, you know, there are some cases where it does it does play, so. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things, and, and I don't think this gives a lot away but it, it, uh, about the series, but it, it's a interesting sort of analysis, is my play changes quite a bit later in the tournament. And one of the things Mark and I talk about a lot in the series is the fact that I play a lot of tables when I grind. Sometimes in the, in the heat of my session, I might have 12, 14, 15 tables. And he's like, oh, my God, like, I can tell now that you're down to two or three tables right. because your play, your play has completely changed. Right. Like you're, you're opening in the right spots. You're three-betting more. You're, you know, make, you know, just, you're doing all this stuff differently. That's interesting. You know, 
than you were doing earlier. He says, and you can just tell by watching, like, in those early stages, you're just on auto- autopilot a lot. Like, you're, check, you know, you're, you're raising and then just check folding flops. You're raising c-betting and folding. You're never floating. You know, you're just playing so ABC, and it's because you have 12 tables going. And he, he beats me up, and he's always like, you've got to start playing those tables, bro. Yeah. Um, I think there's value in that. Um, I, I do think there's value in play. I mean, I, I enjoy – there's obviously debates, and, if, you know, depending on what your hourly rate is, you know, playing more tables could be more profitable. But I think if, it's, if you're getting better at poker and playing slightly less tables, even if your hourly is not as high, I still think, I think it's better to, to do that. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, it was funny because I was actually talking to Mark today, and I said, "I'm, I'm gonna try it, man. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna experiment, and I'm gonna play fewer tables, and I'm just gonna see what happens. And if it, if it works out, then I'll, you know, I guess I'll have to go with it. Right. But I'll miss, I'll miss my days of, you know, six screens on each monitor. <laughs> <laughs> so, what tournament is it that you guys cover? It's the Merge Nightly Eleven. Uh, I was talking, I guess, when we did the when we. Before we brought Andrew on, we were talking about the, the Merge Nightly 60 yeah. what I, that I won. But the uh, the Merge Nightly 11 runs basically around the same time, and it's just another one of those sort of flagship tournaments. And I, well, I don't want to say where I finish in it, so I yeah. won't. But I'll, I'll say I make the final table, and okay. we'll leave that. You don't that. bubble but it. Yeah, you don't bubble it. That would be a good series. I don't. <laughs> no, <laughs> I can tell you, I don't bubble it. Um, but I, you know, I think it'll be interesting to people who. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to everybody. The Stick It to the Mans were always really popular, so I'm pretty excited to bring them back. But I, I think for especially people who maybe play on these, some of these U.S. sites uh, or U.S.-facing sites, they'll find some interest in it because it is one of the tournaments that probably a lot of our U.S. members play. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's coming out. So it's it comes out Valentine's Day. So TP, TPE Nation, this is my <laughs> gift to you. I love you guys so much that I'm giving you KB's head on a platter. <laughs> uh, it was it, enough time had passed. It's my turn to get ripped. Yes, apart. you deserve it. So, you deserve it. No one deserves uh, it more than you, buddy. <laughs> and and don't worry, you'll get your chance soon. Yeah. I'll be. I'll make sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then I also uh, want our other gift to you is uh, we'll we'll be doing more podcasts uh, more frequently. We apologize for some of the gaps and delays in doing these. We, I mean, the great news is. People love this podcast, so they've been yeah. asking us to do more, and it's mostly my fault. So I take the blame and um, making sure that we clear the schedule enough to do these more often. So um, we won't have to wait two months between podcasts anymore. We're going to be much more frequent yeah. than that. So you guys can hold us to that. Yep, yep. we'll do it. We it's our New Year's resolution. Yep, <laughs> that took us until February sixth to make, <laughs> which tells you. A but little you know, bit if we problem. didn't resolve, this could have easily slipped to next week. Uh, but we made. A lot of things happened that we can that we made it happen. So, yeah. So yeah. Thank you guys all very much because you yelling at us to make more podcasts might seem harsh, but really it just tells us that you like the podcast. So we appreciate that. Cool. All so, right. TPE. Right on. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, thanks again to Andrew. And we will see you guys next time, very very soon, on the Tournament Book Reg Podcast. Yep.
Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun, oh. 